Welcome to the year-end edition of Skywave Audio Theater. I'm Norman Gilliland. Ed Kemmer was a World War II fighter pilot. He was shot down over France and spent 11 months in a POW camp. He escaped from that camp and was out and about for a couple of weeks before he was recaptured. Kemmer made his television debut in 1951, starring as Buzz Corey in Space Patrol. The TV version overlapped with the radio version, and that surely placed fewer demands on the special effects crew of the radio version. One of the radio series regulars was Marvin Miller, who handed over a big check each week as Michael J. Anthony on TV's The Millionaire. Tonight we'll hear them in The Last Voyage of the Lonesome Lena, Space Patrol from December 27, 1952. Wheat checks, rice checks, and good hot Ralston present Space Patrol! Transcribed high adventure in the wild, vast reaches of space. Missions of daring in the name of interplanetary justice. Travel into the future with Buzz Corey, Commander-in-Chief of the Space Patrol! Buzz and Happy are in the lower shaft of a secret mine on Saturn's sixth moon. As they wade through the water of the partly flooded shaft, a strange sound filters down through the mine. Happy, listen. Sounds like a motor of some kind. The mine's automatic pump. When the water reaches a certain level, it cuts on and draws off the water. But, Commander, look at the water level against the wall of the shaft. It's rising. You're right, Happy. That pipe isn't drawing water out. It's forcing it in. Someone reversed the pump. They're trying to drown us. We'll be back in just a moment with today's Space Patrol story, The Last Voyage of the Lonesome Lena. (laughs) Presenting the story of a young boy who didn't like any of the cereals his mom brought home. First, he'd say... I can't eat that stuff, Mom. Sometimes he'd say... Oh, gee, no flavor. And then again... Don't like it, Mom. I just don't like it. So she tried cereals in white packages, yellow packages, blue packages. But no luck. No flavor. Then one day she brought home a pair of cereals in red and white checkerboard packages. Wowee, that's good. Oh, boy. Hmm. That's what he said when he tasted one of them. Jumpin' Jupiter. Great day in the morning. This is it. That's what he said when he tasted the other. The cereals? Rice checks and wheat checks, gang. Man, oh, man, they're my cereals. Buzz Corey cereals, too. The bite-sized super cereals that help to supercharge you. Best-tasting cereals in the universe. And the only official ready-to-eat cereals of the Space Patrol. Fill her up, Mom. Rice checks. That's what our friend says now. Fill her up, Mom. Wheat checks. So, gang, if you want a cereal that's right on the beam for flavor, get the cereals in the red and white checkerboard packages. Rice checks. Wheat checks. Saturn's number six moon, Titan, has become increasingly important to the commerce of the outer planets. However, rumors of illegal activity on Titan have caused Commander Corey to send Tonga, his assistant security chief, to the Saturn satellite to investigate. Now, Buzz and Happy, aboard Space Patrol Battlecruiser Terra 5, headed for Titan, are talking to Tonga by spaceophone, as she reports from the satellite's chief settlement, Titan Center. So you find that the chief black market items are processed foods and medical supplies, huh? 
That's right, Commander. What about those reports we received in the uranium mine? Was there anything to the sabotage rumors? Well, there was no actual sabotage, but about two weeks ago, a couple of men did try to get inside the guarded area. Were they captured? No, they got away. But there haven't been any recent incidents. Have you found out who's behind this black market food situation? No, but there's a lot of talk about a Captain Kruger. Captain Gustav Kruger? Yes, he's the one. He's quite a legend in this part of the solar system. I think I've heard of him, Commander. Isn't he that old-time space pilot who has the broken-down cargo ship? Yes, Happy. Lonesome Lena, he calls it. He's been shuttling back and forth between Saturn's moons for years. I've never heard of him being mixed up in anything dishonest. Who gave you this information? A man named Sherwin McCurdy, for one. He's behind a lot of this new development in Titan. Kruger has given McCurdy some trouble, but uh, I don't think McCurdy takes the old gentleman too seriously. Have you met Kruger? No, not yet. He just got back from Saturn. He's a Titan sent to spaceport repairing his ship. We'll have a talk with him when we land. Meet us at the spaceport and we'll go over together. Yes, sir. Corey out. Well, stand by for landing, Happy. Standing by, sir. Kill rockets. Rockets out. Hit repeller ray. Repeller ray on, sir. Now, let's button up the ship, and then we'll have a chat with Captain Kruger. So that's the lonesome Lena. Boy, that ship must be a hundred years old. Well, not quite happy, but it has seen a lot of service. It's so patched up. And look how it's pitted with meteor hits. Only a real space pilot could keep it in operation. Is that Kruger coming down the ladder? Yes. Captain Kruger! Oh, Captain Kruger! He looked right at us and then turned away. Oh. I told you he was independent. Let's get over there. He's checking the hatch. Well, how's the ship, Captain? Uh, good for another 50 billion DUs. With you handling it anyway. Remember me, Commander Corey? Yeah, I recognized you. This is my cadet, Happy. Very glad to know you, Captain. Uh, have some callium seeds, cadet? Uh, some what? Callium seeds. <laughs> Great unraveled orbits, Commander. Don't tell me this new crop of space cadets doesn't know what callium seeds are. Never heard of them, Captain. <laughs> Your education sure has been neglected. Well, they grow on Venus, Happy. They used to be very popular on space flights. Yeah, you never get space sickness if you chew callium seeds. Not only that, but they keep you from blacking out at high acceleration. Oh. And out in space, you never mind the absence of gravity as long as you chew callium seeds. As you can see, Happy, Captain Kruger is a pilot of the old school. He's the only pilot I know who still chews raw callium seeds. Yeah. People nowadays won't touch them. Just because they stain your hands purple when you crack them. Ah. Well, Commander, you didn't come over here for a lecture on callium seeds. What's on your mind? Oh, just a few questions about business. Ah, I see. I suppose you've heard rumors that I'm hijacking food and selling it on the black market. Is that it? There are a lot of rumors in Titan these days, Captain. Yeah, and a lot of upstarts. They come in here with shiny new ships and big ideas. They act like I don't belong. I'm getting shoved around, Commander. But I'm not going to take it. I never have. I'm not going to now. Well, now, if you'll excuse me, i got some repairs to make. Lonesome Lena's in pretty bad shape. All right, Captain. Come on, Happy. Let's find Tonga. You can tell them for me that if Sherwin McCurdy promised delivery, they'll get it. We're a little short of spaceships here on Titan right now. Hey, look, stall them off. Promise them anything. I'll call you back later. Come in. 
Well, Curdy, I want to work with you. Well, Captain Kruger, glad to see you. Put your hand back in your pocket, McCurdy. Why, what's the matter, Captain? You seem angry. Why wouldn't I be? For ten years, I've been setting the old lonesome Lena down on Titan any place I wanted, or on any moon in the Saturn system. Folks were mighty glad to see me whenever I rocketed in, until your crowd got here. My crowd, Captain? One of your hired flunkies just told me I can't sit down on the Titan Center spaceport anymore. Oh, what kind of high-handed nonsense is that? It isn't nonsense, Captain. You can't put the Lonesome Lena down on this port. Well, that old bucket of bolts you call the Lonesome Lena is a menace. If I had my way, I'd report you to the Space Patrol. They'd melt up that old hulk. Oh, you would. You'd melt up a ship that has helped keep people alive for the last 40 years out here on these moons. Ship's out of date. It's served its purpose. Now it's finished. Who are you to decide whether the Lonesome Lena's finished? Why, one patch on that old battered hull is worth 10000 of you. Melt her up, would you? I warn you, McCurdy, if you ever say that again, I'll slap you Take space. your hands off me. Take your... All right, hands Captain, that's me. enough. Commander uh. Corey, this man attacked me. You got here just in time. What's the trouble here? I was merely pointing out that his spaceship violates Space Patrol safety regulations. That's a bald-faced lie, McCurdy. The Lonesome Lena's safe as any ship in the space lane. Does it have repeller ray equipment? Well, no. Does it have infrared viewscope equipment? I don't need it. I can land it blindfolded on any spaceport in the solar system. Does it have Class A radiation shielding on the space drive? Ah, her shielding's good enough. I ought to know I built it. I see, Commander. Obviously, he can't be permitted to land here at Titan Center. Those are regulations. Commander, I've always respected you. Are you going to side in with this planet lubber? I'm sorry, Captain Kruger, but I don't make the regulations. My job is to enforce them. There are thousands of people here in Titan Center. Their safety comes first. They're safer with Lonesome Lena than with half the amateur pilots in these new ships, and you know it. Captain, if we made an exception in your case, we'd have to do it for everyone. However, we won't be concerned if you have these safety devices installed. But that takes money, Commander. I haven't got it. I'll never be able to get it if I can't land here to load and unload freight. Well, perhaps you can work out some arrangements to land outside a ten-mile radius of Titan Center. Ten miles? Uh, might as well be ten DUs out in space. I'm sorry, Captain Kruger. There's nothing I can do. Uh, you win, McCurdy. Have some callium seeds. I won't be needing them anymore. Well... Captain is very dramatic, isn't he? I don't find it amusing, Mr. McCurdy. That old ship of his means more than his livelihood. It's his life. Well, Commander, I wouldn't let my sympathies blind me to Captain Kruger's uh, sharp practices. What do you mean? Kruger's lived by his wits. He's been a lone wolf. Now he's up against the rules of society, and instead of abiding by the rules, he takes the attitude that everyone's against him. Watch him, Commander. I confess I'm rather afraid of what he might do. I'm here in Titan to prevent trouble, Mr. McCurdy. Why I came to see you. I'd like to talk to you about conditions here. Of course. Sit down. All right, now, I just want to make an appointment. I have a few matters to talk over first with my assistant security chief, Tonga, back at our temporary headquarters. I see. How about later today? That'll be fine, Commander. I'll look forward to it. So the captain is really sore, huh? Yeah. In a way, I can't blame him. Oh, Tonga, did you tell the commander about the uranium mine? Uranium mine? Yes, the big one, halfway around Titan. Someone is planning to tap the mine, dig into it from a natural cavern on the other side of the mountain so they can steal the ore or sabotage the mine. Who's behind this? I don't know. But I do know that some mining equipment has been hidden in the cavern. And I know the location. 
They're being very careful. The cross tunnel is being worked only when the cavern is on the night side of Titan. It's daylight there now. I think Happy and I ought to take a look at it. Do you want me to go too, Commander? No, you stay here in Titan Center. Call Sherwin McCurdy. Tell him I won't be able to keep that appointment. May not be back in time. There's the mouth of the cavern, sir. Uh-huh. There's been plenty of activity around here, too, by the looks of the ground. Yeah, there's a pipe leading from the cavern. A drainage pipe. Machinery right inside the cave. Looks like a pump. A pump? Apparently they have to keep pumping water out of the shaft inside the cavern. Get your atomic light, Happ. We'll have a look inside. Don't bump your head when you go through this opening, Happy. I wonder how close we are to the regular mine. It's hard to tell. Hey, we're in water over our ankles. Uh-huh. Oh, this shaft can't go much farther. We must be halfway into the mountain by now. The water's getting deeper, sir. It's nearly up to my waist. Yeah. Listen. Sounds like a motor of some kind. Must be back outside the cabin. The automatic pump engine. When the water reaches a certain level, it cuts on and draws off the water. But, Commander, look at the water level against the wall of the shaft. Looks like it's rising. You're right, Hap. That pipe isn't drawing water out, it's forcing it in. Someone reversed the pumps. They know we're down here and they're trying to drown us. We'll be back with Space Patrol in just a minute. They call him Whizzer, and there's not another boy in the neighborhood who can play basketball half as well. <laughs> What's your secret, Whizzer? No secret. I just get supercharged every morning. You mean you have a good breakfast with a checkerboard super cereal? You bet. Rice chicks, wheat chicks, or instant Ralston. That's how Buzz Corey gets supercharged. That's how I get supercharged. Say, how about those checks? They're plenty delicious, right? I'll say. And they're bite-sized. And they're the only cereals in the universe that have that modern bite-sized design. And there's only one cereal in the universe like Instant Ralston. I love it. That's the hot super cereal. Helps you to think fast, act fast. And play basketball fast. You said it. Instant Ralston is a cereal for winners and whizzers. That's what you are, a winner. How about you, gang? Wouldn't you like to be whizzer? Get supercharged. Eat a good breakfast with a checkerboard super cereal. Don't wait. Get them today. Rice checks, wheat checks, good hot Ralston. Buzz and Happy have entered a cavern on Titan, sixth moon of the planet Saturn, to investigate a hidden shaft that they believe leads to a uranium mine. After crawling through a narrow opening far under the ground, they suddenly noticed that the water in the bottom of the shaft seemed to be rising. Then they heard the sound of the pump echoing down from the cavern opening and realized that water was being deliberately pumped into the mine shaft to drown them. With the water up to their chests, they flashed their atomolites around them, searching for a way to escape. Hey, wait, Hap. Listen. I don't hear the pump anymore. Maybe it's been shut off. No. The water's still gushing in from that pipe. We don't hear the pump because the water is over the narrow opening. Well, then how are we going to get through? We'll dive under long enough to get to a place where the water doesn't fill the shaft. All set, Happy? Yes, sir. Dive deep. We made it. Yeah. 
see the water's not even up to my hips here. We're on the upward slope of the shaft. Come on, Happy. Let's get out of this place. sign of a ship around here, sir, except ours. Whoever did this has certainly finished us off. I'd sure like to find out who it was. Happy. Look there on the ground. See what's scattered around the pump? Callium seeds. Right. Well, I guess we know who turned the pump on, sir. I've known Captain Kruger a long time. I can't imagine him doing a thing like this. Shall I pick up some of these seeds, sir, for evidence? Yes. Then let's get back to Titan Center. I don't understand it, Commander. I don't see how Kruger or anyone else knew that I told you about the secret mine. Well, he could have seen our ship headed that way and followed us in Lonesome Lena. Well, if he did, he must be working with a gang. While you were gone, something happened here. Oh? Some antibiotics were stolen. Several thousand credits worth. The worst part of it is they're urgently needed at a hospital in Saturn. There's an epidemic of Zeta virus in Saturn City. Well, can't they send medicine in from some other planet? Well, this particular antibiotic is made here in Titan. There is some on the other planets, but there isn't enough time to get it. And if a supply of the medicine isn't taken to Saturn very soon, the doctors say a lot of cases will prove fatal. Yeah, there must be some more of that medicine here on Titan. Maybe McCurdy can help us out. I've already talked to McCurdy. He said he's contacted every possible source. The thieves stole every bit of it and will now hold out for a fancy prize. Well, they won't have to hold out long. Commander, do you think Kruger's mixed up in this, too? We're going to find out, Happy. Let's find the lonesome Lena. Corey! Captain Kruger. I won't be persecuted. Not by the Space Patrol or anybody else. I'm getting a raw deal. And if you're as fair-minded as I think you are, you'll agree with me. Is the raw deal you're getting as bad as being nearly drowned in a flooded mine? Huh? What are you talking about? Show him the evidence, Happy. Yes, sir. Recognize these, Captain? Well, of course. They're callium seeds. We found them by the pump, Kruger. Pump? What pump? In the opening of the secret shaft near the uranium mines. I'm not interested in any uranium mines. I want justice. Commander, look what that McCurdy has done to me now. You see this paper? It's a doctor's order telling me I can't make any more commercial space flights. McCurdy has been trying to get the official doctors on me for months. He's finally succeeded. They gave me a checkup, and I'm grounded. Let me see that. For six hours, they gave me tests. Heart, blood pressure, metabolism, the works. This is Dr. Greer's signature, all right? Yeah. But just read what he says. Captain Kruger's condition makes any further space flights extremely dangerous. As a space physician, I deem it inadvisable for Captain Kruger to be permitted to operate any commercial spacecraft for reasons of his own safety and the safety of others. Signed, Dr. Melvin Greer. What am I going to do now, Commander? I'll starve to death. I'd rather go quick, blasting off on a spaceship. Now just a minute, Captain. This physical examination must have taken several hours. I just told you it did. Then you couldn't have been at the mine. Mine? I haven't been near any mine. I haven't been anywhere but in the doctor's office getting needles stuck in me. And that isn't all. While the doc was working on me, there was a gang of inspectors checking over Lonesome Lena. Official space patrol inspectors? Yeah. That's another thing McCurdy's been trying to arrange for months. I admit I've been dodging inspection because I knew what they'd say. Me and Lonesome Lena were both out of commission. I'm sorry about that, Captain Kruger. Yeah, you're sorry. 
But you can be thankful for one thing. This examination clears you of suspicion. Someone has been trying very hard to implicate you in a serious crime. Well, that's not news to me, Commander. I have an idea who it might be. You mean McCurdy, sir? Uh, Now, wait a minute. I know McCurdy has it in for me, but I'd say this for him. He tried to get Dr. Greer to postpone the physical examination. Oh, he did. After trying for months to bring it about. Yeah, but it didn't do any good. The doc said I was too slippery an old cuss to take chances with. So I was stuck. Happy. Tonga, we're going to find McCurdy. Captain, you stay around close in case I need you. Uh, Don't worry, Commander. I won't be going anywhere. There he is, sir. Uh, Heading for that atmosphere ship. He certainly seems in a hurry. Tonga, wait here. Come on, Happy. Curdy, wait a minute. He's running for the ship, sir. Well, Curdy, hold it. I want to talk to you. What is it, Commander? I've got a few questions I'd like to ask. Of course. We've just come from your office. From the looks of things, you left in a hurry. In fact, it looks as though you didn't intend to come back. Should that concern the Space Patrol, Commander? Possibly. Where were you going? I happen to have business at Torkman on the other side of Titan. Now, if you'll excuse me... Not until you explain that purple stain on your hand. What? That purple stain on your hands, could it be from callium seeds? Callium seeds? Why, what would I be doing with callium seeds? Scattering them around a pump, maybe? That package you're holding, what's in it? This has gone far enough. Stand back and get your hands up. You ought to be quicker than that, McCurdy. Let go of that ray gun. That's it. Now, don't try anything like that again. Commander, this package he's got. Look at the label. Acro Laboratories, Titan Center, Antibiotics. This must be the medicine that was to go to Saturn. Take it back to Tonga. We'll blast off for Saturn right away. You won't get off Titan in your ship, Corey. Why not? I put your controls out of commission so you couldn't follow me. And there isn't any other ship on the satellite except my atmosphere ship. And that won't take you there. I'm afraid he's right, Commander. You'll have to space a phone to Saturn for a ship to come and get us. Oh, but that will take hours. And the situation on Saturn is critical. Commander! Oh, yes, Captain? Hal, I see you got McCurdy. Yes, and the medicine. Yeah, but McCurdy's wrecked our ship. There's no way to get off of Titan. Well, how about the lonesome Lena? Uh... But Lena's grounded. Ah, just a lot of official space jabber. She'll still fly. And by Jupiter, I'm taking you all to Saturn. You'd better let me take your ship, Captain, after what the doctor said. Uh, Commander, I know you're the best pilot in the solar system, but uh, Lena's sort of, well, temperamental. She's got a lot of quirks and things. If she isn't handled just right, well, uh, she just... Might go all to pieces. Are you sure you're willing to risk a blast off in Lena after what the doctor said? Commander, I'm safer in Lonesome Lena than anywhere in the universe. Then let's go. Come on, McCurdy. We're taking you with us. Not in that pile of junk. It isn't safe. Get going. The ship's condemned. You have no right to endanger my life. Why, you low-frequency crook. As though your life was worth a allium seed. Let's go. Bring the medicine, Happy. All right, everybody. Sit tight. We're going to blast off. Look at those controls. Why, well, they're just patched together. Keep quiet, McCurdy. All right, Captain, when you're ready. Uh, wait, wait just a minute. i got a few more adjustments to make here. Like I said, Lena's temperamental. You sort of got a sense what to do. Oh, I admit I've never seen a control set up like this. Ah. Are you ready, everybody? Yes. All set. Let her go. And here we go. Commander, we're 
baseboard. An excellent blast off, Captain. Yeah, just like I said. I... Captain, what's wrong? My heart. I'm going to get the first aid kit if there is one. He's passed out. Now what are we going to do? Happy. Yes, Commander? Help me lift the captain out of the pilot's seat. Yes, sir. There. Happy, you and Tonga see what you can do to make him comfortable. I'll take a lonesome Lena into Saturn. How you doing, Commander? All right, so far, Happy. We're two minutes out of Saturn City spaceport. How's the captain? He seems to be coming out of it, sir. Tonga's trying to make him lie down back aft. He had me worried for a while. I hope he can take the landing. It'll be just as bad as the blast-off with this antiquated equipment. Have you space phone the hospital, sir? Yes. The chief physician says that if you get the medicine there in half an hour, we'll be in time. Oh, we can do that easy. Yes, I can land this hulk without crashing. Stand by for landing. Commander! Captain Kruger! I just couldn't make him stay in the bunk, Commander. Oh, I'm sorry I conked out on you, but... Well, I see you got everything under control. Uh... You think you can handle the landing, Commander, or do you want me to... I'd better take her in, Captain, in case you... Oh, sure, sure. But if I just might make a suggestion... But that's it, that's it! Thunder and Comets, Commander, you sure know how to handle Lonesome Lena. Here we go, brace yourselves. That's it, that's it, you got it, you've got it! We made it. Captain, are you all right? Oh, just fine. That was a great landing, Commander. I couldn't have done better myself. Say, you took that pretty well. Oh, I found some callium seeds back aft. <laughs> Nothing like them for space flying. You have some, Cadet? This time you've got a customer, Captain. I... I don't feel so well. (laughs) This is Commander Corey. And Marvin Miller. Reminding you that pulling up to your breakfast table... Is like pulling up to a filling station. Give him our example, Marvin. A jet cycle has just pulled into a filling station to get its tank filled. The man has it filled with ordinary fuel. Listen. Not much go in that jet cycle, is there? Now listen to the same jet cycle filled with super fuel. That cycle's flying like a rocket now because it's supercharged with super fuel. Same thing is true for you, gang. To get going in the morning, you need super fuel, too. So get supercharged the way space patrollers do. Eat a good breakfast with Instant Ralston, the hot super cereal. Instant Ralston helps you to think fast. And act fast. So remember, when you pull up to your breakfast table, it's just like pulling up to a filling station. You're there for fuel. Super fuel. So you can get supercharged. Uh, Take a tip. Eat a good breakfast with instant Ralston and get supercharged. Get it today in the red and white checkerboard package. Good hot Ralston. And now for a preview of next week's exciting Space Patrol story. Buzz and Happy have gone to the offices of John Crozer to rescue a noted scientist abducted by Crozer. I know Professor Hegman is somewhere in this building, Crozer. Take us to him. Why, Commander... You're mistaken. Oh, no, we're not. Don't sit there under that sun lamp. Take me to Hegman. Well, all right, Corey. If you insist. Hey, my eyes. Turn that lamp off. Get him, Happy. 
I can't see. Uh, here's yours, cadet. Now, Corey, I'm going to finish you off permanently. Be sure to be with us next Saturday for the exciting story, The Brain Bank and the Space Binocular, when Wheat Checks, Rice Checks, and Good Hot Ralston again bring you Space Patrol! And now, gang, here's a word from Cadet Happy. Boys and girls, this is Cadet Happy. Do you know how life-giving oxygen is carried to the cells of the body? By the bloodstream. So when a person loses a great deal of blood in an accident or in sickness, there's not enough blood left to do that job. Result? The person dies. So will you help me save lives by joining the Space Patrol Blood Boosters? It's fun. It's patriotic. So join the Space Patrol Blood Boosters today. Space Patrol, an original Mike Moser production, starring Ed Kemmer as Commander Corey and Lynn Osborne as Cadet Happy, was written by Lou Houston and directed by Larry Robertson. Other players were Marvin Miller, Nina Barra, and Norman Jolly. Don't forget to tune in next Saturday and every Saturday when Wheat Checks, Rice Checks, and Good Hot Ralston again present the new exciting Space Patrol! Be sure to see another exciting Space Patrol story on your local ABC television station. Consult your local newspaper for time and channel. Space Patrol comes to you transcribed from Hollywood. This is ABC Radio Network. Space Patrol from December 27, 1952, with The Last Voyage of the Lonesome Lena. A blend of science fiction, crime fiction, and mystery. And it was a hard sell on the cereal, but at least uh, those wheat checks and rice checks don't have as much sugar in them as a lot of the breakfast foods that were being hawked at that time. Waiting in the wings, George Burns and Gracie Allen with some end-of-the-year thoughts. This is Skywave Audio Theater. In an interview years after the fact, George Burns said of Gracie Allen, the audience found her, I didn't. In their vaudeville days, Gracie's charm and ladylike demeanor were incompatible with sarcasm or spite, and in that rough-and-tumble environment of vaudeville, her audiences felt protective of her. Burns also discovered early on that the act was funnier when Gracie got the punchlines. After nine years of living on trains and in hotel rooms, they found their way into radio. And a big break came in 1931 when headliner Eddie Cantor invited Gracie, just Gracie, to be a guest on his show. And George took it well, made sure that uh, her act was well scripted. And within a few years, they had a show all their own. Then made a smooth transition years later to TV. That was in 1950. Tonight, their old friend Eddie Cantor is with them again in a broadcast of the Burns and Allen Show from December 26, 1946. Another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George? Sure, pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last drop. And that drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House coffee time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. With yours truly, Bill Goodwin, 
The music of Meredith Wilson and his orchestra, Tommy Bernard, our happy postman Mel Blanc, and our guest star, Eddie Cantor. Twas the day after Christmas, and in the Burns house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Oops, my mistake, George is stirring. You know, Gracie, I just can't get over this beautiful Christmas present Eddie Cantor gave me. A hundred and ten dollar smoking jacket. Yes, it's hard to believe, all right, but there's the price tag hanging right on it. <laughs> that was probably an oversight on the part of some clerk. Eddie would die if he knew it was on there. Well, then why does this card read, Merry Christmas from Eddie Cantor, who paid $110 for this jacket? Some clerk wrote that. Did you see what it says on the outside of the package? No. It says, Special Delivery. What's 13 cents to a man who's already spent $110? <laughs> well, I don't care. It's a beautiful gift. Boy, 110 bucks. I'll bet that's more than he spent on Ida. Well, of course it is. He got her for nothing. <laughs> I meant that's more than he spent on her Christmas present. Mm, there's something awfully strange about this, George. It's not like Eddie Cantor to spend all this money. Well, I guess he figures he can't take it with him. George, if Eddie can't take it with him, he'll find a way to send for it. <laughs> <laughs> there's the door. I'll answer it. Gee, a $110 smoking jacket. No more of those two-for-nickel cigars while I'm wearing this. From now on, I smoke only Royal Havana Super Deluxe King Specials. Three for a dime. That was the delivery man, George. Look, someone sent you an erector set. Erector set? Uh-huh. That's a child's toy. Somebody's trying to rib me. What does the card say? It says, to little Georgie Podgy from Santa Claus. Oh, fine. George, did you write Santa Claus a letter? <laughs> this is not from Santa Claus. It's from somebody who wants to pull my leg. Oh, that's your tailor. He's always wanted to get your legs even. My legs are even. Some wise guy. Anyway, this erector set just makes me appreciate Eddie Cantor's gift all the more. A hundred and ten dollar smoking jacket. Now, there's a present. Oh, well, don't feel so bitter about this erector set, dear. Maybe it'll be lots of fun. Look at the things it says you can make with it. A teeter-totter. A teeter-totter. Uh... Oh, jolly. <laughs> Won't the fellows at the cigar store envy me when they see my teeter-totter? Well, now, just a I'll minute. hide it behind my back and say, guess what, fellow? And they'll say, golf clubs? Fishing tackle? And I'll say, no. A teeter-totter. <laughs> Dear, you play with your erector set. Play with it, my foot. I wouldn't touch the silly thing. Good morning, Missy Burns. Here's your mail. Oh, thank you, Mr. Postman. Well, how do you feel? Did delivering all that Christmas mail wear you out? Oh, yeah. <laughs> my feet have blisters that belong on a B-29. Oh, you poor man. I delivered more mail than Bing Crosby's obstetrician. <laughs> well, I hope Santa Claus is good to you. Was there something nice in your stocking yesterday morning? Yes, but there was something horrible in my wife's stocking. Oh, what was it? My wife. <laughs> How about your Christmas, Mrs. Burns? 
Was the jolly old gentleman with the big tummy good to you? Oh, George is always good to me. <laughs> this year he gave me a lovely gold bracelet. I picked it out myself. Then it wasn't a surprise? Well, it will be to George. <laughs> he doesn't know about it yet. And right now, I don't dare tell him. He's in a pretty bad humor. How come? Oh, some practical joker gave him a child's toy for Christmas. One of those erectors said. George is furious. I pulled a similar joke on my wife, Bertha, one Christmas. I gave her a broom. Well, what's wrong with giving your wife a broom? It had a saddle and stirrups on it. <laughs> Bertha was mad as a hornet. Well, I'll bet it handed you a laugh. Laugh? I thought I'd die. <laughs> and so did the doctor. <laughs> well, goodbye, Mrs. Burns. You remember, keep smiling. George, just a few late Christmas cards and... Why, George! I made a teeter-totter. <laughs> and I did it in six minutes flat. Oh, I'm proud of you, darling. Only six minutes? Why, it says right here in the box, to make a teeter-totter should take the average child about... Well, it's new to you. <laughs> what does it say the average child should take? 30 seconds. Well, anyway, this thing is sure a lot of fun. And now I'm going to start a steam shovel. Come in. Mr. Byrne? Yes, what is it, son? I believe you've got my erector set by mistake. Huh? My name is Georgie Lemaire, and I live across the street. And the delivery man says he got the wrong house and left it here. Oh, we're sorry it happened, little boy. Put it in the box, George, and give it to him. Wait a minute. Look, kid. How would you like to have a nice smoking jacket? A hundred and ten dollar smoking jacket. No, sir, I want my erector set. Well, give it to him, George. But, kid, look, this smoking jacket is from Eddie Cantor. Who's he? <laughs> Who's he? Tell him, Gracie. Why, Sonny, Eddie Cantor is the man who... He tells all those... He's the biggest... Give him the erector set. Now, look, kid, can't we make a deal? This is a beautiful smoking jacket. I want my erector set. Oh, all right. But let me finish the steam shovel first. By then, he'll be old enough for the smoking jacket. Never mind. How about it, kid? I want my erector set. Now, look, I wouldn't want to use force on, a, on an eight-year-old but I'm going to finish that steam shovel if I have to throw you down and sit on you. No, you're not. You give me that. Now let go of that. Give let go. Kid. Let go. Let go. Oh, shame on you, you bully. You let him up this instant. <laughs> there. Now you take your erector set and go home, Sonny. Did he hurt you, George? <laughs> Nothing but blue skies do I see. You know, Meredith, I guess that's one of the gladdest and happiest songs I've ever known. That it is, Bill. 
And with New Year's Eve less than a week away, it's mighty timely, too. New Year's Eve. That's the great American night for ringing out the old and ringing in the new. Yippee. Blue days, all of them gone. Nothing but blue skies from now on. Yes, Meredith, it's one night in the year when all of us can see that silver lining. When hope and optimism and good cheer are really riding high. Makes you understand why the celebration of New Year's Eve is such a happy and joyous part of the American scene. And that brings to mind how Maxwell House coffee is a very real part of the American scene, too. We Americans love coffee, have made it our national drink. And more people buy and enjoy Maxwell House than any other brand of coffee at any price. North, east, south, and west, it's Maxwell House wherever you go. Flavors behind this great popularity story, of course, the rich, vigorous Maxwell House flavor that results from the masterful blending of these selected Latin American coffees. Manizales for mellowness. Medellins for richness. Other fine coffees for vigor. And Bucaramangas for full body. All adding up to great coffee at its flavor peak. So, friends, why not enjoy the very best in coffee goodness, coffee pleasure? You can for just a fraction of a penny more per cup than you'd pay for the cheapest coffee sold. Next time, say, Maxwell House, always good to the last drop. kid. He would have to come after his erector set just when I was getting interested. Oh, well, never mind, dear. You'll get over it. But I wanted to finish that steam shovel. Oh, well, dear. Mama will make some ice cream and let you lick the dasher. <laughs> oh, stop. Just because I happen to enjoy building things. Uh, come in. Hello, all. Hello, Meredith. Hello. Well, what's wrong with him? Somebody took away his erector set. Oh, well, George... I don't have an erector set, but I'd be glad to lend you my set of tiddlywinks. <laughs> although it's not quite complete. Look, Meredith. All the winks are there, but in the excitement of a recent game, I broke my red tiddly. <laughs> Meredith. Or, uh, it... you might be interested in a Cupid doll I have, which, when patted on the stomach, says Mama. No, I'm not interested. Would you care to hear how I got that Cupid doll? No. It was at the Saragorda County Fair back in 1928. There was a booth there where for a nickel you could buy three baseballs, hurl them at assorted knickknacks, and keep whatever knickknack you knocked over. I purchased three balls and let fly with a right good will. And you knocked over the Cupid doll. No, I knocked over J.C. Tolliver, a local apothecary. He was at a nearby booth eating hot buttered popcorn. My goodness. Undismayed, I cut loose with the second baseball. Oh, and that time you got the Cupid doll. No, got J.C. Tolliver again. <laughs> he was bending over to pick up his hot buttered popcorn. Show me how he was bending over, Meredith. Like this, George. Oh! Goodbye, Meredith. <laughs> Goodbye, all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes.
Snoopy does. Tiddlywinks. All I want is an erector set so I can build a steam shovel. And unless you get one, there'll never be an end to this. You wait here. <laughs> Gracie, you shouldn't have done it. Well, George, I knew you wouldn't be happy until you had an erector set, so I went to the store and got you one. Boy, hey, where'd you get the money? I traded the smoking jacket for it. You traded Eddie Cantor's $110 smoking jacket for this erector set? <laughs> that smoking jacket didn't cost $110, dear. I talked to the man Eddie bought it from. But it had a big price tag on it. He bought that from the same man. <laughs> Well, how much did Eddie pay for the jacket? A hundred? No. Seventy-five? No. Fifty? Mm-mm. How much? Well, the erector set was twelve and a half. Yeah. I traded the smoking jacket. Yeah. And we owe the store two and a half. <laughs> the smoking jacket cost ten dollars. That included four boxes of cigars. <laughs> the cigars I didn't even get. You didn't get the set of dishes either. A set of dishes came with it? And a pocket knife. A pocket knife? And a round trip to Azusa. Murder. I'd like to have had the pocket knife. Yeah. Well, the salesman said that that knife really should be in the pocket of the smoking jacket at all times. Why? Well, in case you spill water on the jacket, you can cut your way out before it chokes you to death. He's exaggerating. Besides, I don't care what Eddie paid for the jacket. It's the spirit of the gift that counts. Now, you go right back to the May Company and get it. It didn't come from the May Company. Bullocks? No. Broadway? Uh-uh. Where? Laughing Frankie Gordon. <laughs> that smiling Frankie Gordon. He laughed when he saw that. <laughs> well, you get it back here. No matter what the jacket is worth, it's, Eddie, it's Eddie's gift to me and I want it. Besides, I don't believe all that stuff about a free trip to Azusa and a set of dishes. Eddie Cantor's got plenty of money and he... Come in. Oh, Merry Christmas, George and Gracie. Merry Christmas! Well, Eddie! Eddie, you're a day late with your Merry Christmas. I know, Gracie. I got caught overnight in Azusa. <laughs> Azusa? Yeah, I just happened to have a round-trip ticket. Uh, I see. Eddie, what did you give Ida for Christmas? Ida, oh, a lovely gift. A set of dishes. <laughs> I thought so. And uh, how about your five daughters? Well, to Janet, the oldest one, I gave a beautiful pocket knife. Then to each of the other four girls, I gave a box of cigars. <laughs> cigars? Money is no object to me. <laughs> but, Eddie, your daughters don't smoke cigars. Their husbands can smoke them. But won't the cigars be awfully stale by then? You... <laughs> They'll be dead and buried by then. Oh, yes, oh, yes. But enough about my Christmas. Did you get the smoking jacket I sent you, George? Oh, yes. Thanks, Eddie. Well, that's all right. What's $110 among friends? <laughs> Who said anything about $110? The price tag came off? <laughs> Why, how could it? I stuck it on with a Pabst beer label. <laughs> oh, well, as long as I know you got it. Well, now, how would you two like to eat dinner with me, huh? Oh, we'd love it. Well, thanks. Now, don't fix anything extra, Gracie. I'll take potluck. <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> 
yes, I want to see George in that beautiful smoking jacket I gave him. Why don't you put it on right now, George? Um, yes. Gracie, run get that jacket for Yeah, me. all right. It's in the next room. I'll be back in a half hour. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. It takes you a half hour to walk into the next room and back? The carpet. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> let, let me get it for you. No, huh? no, no. I Oh, I just happened to think. I took the smoking jacket to the cleaners. I... Already? Well, yeah, George got smoke on it. <laughs> I I'll be right back. Well, look, my car's out front. I'll drive you to the cleaner. Oh, no, no. I I'm too tired. I'd rather walk. <laughs> Goodbye. Gee, I, I hope she gets it, Eddie. I wouldn't want anything to happen to a $110 jacket. Look, George, we've... We've known each other for 25 years. You and I... Well, we can be honest with each other. That jacket didn't cost 110. No? No. I put that price tag on it so as not to embarrass you. Embarrass me? How would you feel if you knew I, I really paid 150 for it? I'd die. They say it's wonderful. Our nomination for the best song of 1946. Meredith Wilson and his music. George, is Gracie here? No, Bill. She's going to pick up my smoking jacket. You know Eddie Cantor, don't you? Oh, of course. Hello, Mr. Cantor. Oh, Bill, my boy. How are you? Looks Fine. good. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't been by to call on my daughters lately. Oh, well, as a matter of fact, I did call on your daughter Janet last night. You weren't there. I know. I spent the night in Azusa. Uh, Bill, <laughs> Bill, did you have a good time with Janet? Well, uh, Mr. Cantor, I would have, but... But, uh, but what? When did she start carrying a pocket knife? <laughs> a smart Christmas present I gave her. How was Ida, Bill? Was she lonesome without me? Well, I don't know. She was out seeing the Jolson story. <laughs> Every night Ida sees the Jolson story? Is she getting passes? Tell me, were the other girls home? Oh, yes. They introduced me to a game called uh, Break One and Get One. Break one and get one? Yeah. It seems that some schnook gave Ida a cheap set of dishes. <laughs> and she wanted the girls to get rid of them, so every time I broke one, I got a cigar. 
<laughs> a cigar? Yeah, the same schnook gave the girls cigars. I wonder who that schnook could be. <laughs> oh, by the way, Mr. Cantor, speaking of the Jolson story, I think they should do a picture about you. No, no, no. How would that sound, the schnook story? I, uh, uh, <laughs> it's no good. It wouldn't work out. Well, really, I think it's a great idea, Mr. Cantor. Now, Jolson had to have a handsome young fellow named Larry Parks to play his part, but you wouldn't need him. That's right, I, I wouldn't. No, I could do it. <laughs> you see, they'll photograph me, and, and your voice will come out of my mouth singing, I'd have... Sweet as Maxwell House coffee. Wait, Sweet, uh, wait a minute. Wait, that's, not, that's not what the song says, you know. If it comes out of my mouth, that's what it'll say. <laughs> Maxwell House coffee is rich, mellow, delicious, the result of careful selection and blending of choice Latin American coffees radiant roasted to perfection. But, but, but Bill, coffee doesn't rhyme with Ida. That, that spoils the song. Oh, you're right, of course. I'll, well, I have to change that. Yeah. Well, we'll do it like this. Sophie... Sweet as Maxwell House coffee. No. Bill, William Goodwin, no. Well, what's the matter now? That, that rhymes. It not only has rhyme, but reason, because more people buy and enjoy Maxwell House than any other brand of coffee in the world. Oh, Bill, stop teasing, Getty. There's only one way that song can go like this. Ida, oh, sweet as apple Pardon me for interrupting, but George, did, did you enjoy working for our sponsor in 1946? Well, sure. Would you like to work for him in 1947? You bet. How does the song go? Sophie, Smee's Maxwell House, Kobe. That's better, George, because Maxwell House is the very best in coffee drinking pleasure, yet it costs but a fraction of a penny more per cup than the cheapest coffee you can buy. That's why so many millions of Americans insist on Maxwell House. These days, they know today's coffee buy is Maxwell House, the coffee that's always good to the last drop. Now, look, if you two think that you can... Well, I'm back. We can have dinner now. Oh, hello, Bill. Hi, Gracie. George, may I speak to you alone for a moment? Sure. Uh, excuse us, Eddie. That's all right. Uh, did you, uh, did you get the smoking jacket? Well, I couldn't. The store was closed. And what's in the package? Well, I stopped by the cleaners and got your overcoat. You, you can wear that at the dinner table. An overcoat? Well, we'll tell Eddie you're wearing the smoking jacket under it. He'll think I'm crazy. No, he won't. We'll open all the windows and get it freezing cold in the house. <laughs> Thank goodness we live in Los Angeles when you can do that. Well, that's a big help. Gracie, it doesn't happen to be freezing cold outside. Well, open the windows anyway. In two minutes, he won't be able to see you for the smog. <laughs> that won't work either. Oh, you put on the overcoat. I'll think of something. Okay. Anything to keep Eddie from knowing you traded in his Christmas present. Dinner's on the table. Oh, swell. I, I can't wait to see George in that smoking jacket. Well, there he is. Yeah, he, he's wearing an overcoat. Well, naturally. We're having a cold meal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm very sensitive to, to, to heat and cold. What does he wear when you have a hot meal? I don't know. Ladies aren't allowed. <laughs> 
You'll like this meal, Eddie. Sliced bologna, cold chicken. Yeah, oh, the chicken's another reason for the overcoat. It saves wear and tear on the tablecloth. How? Well, he can stick the bones in his pocket. <laughs> it's neater that way. <laughs> chicken, Eddie? Thanks. It seems a shame to cover up a $200 smoking jacket. <laughs> the last time you mentioned the price, it was $150. What a memory. Well, there were a few extras. Special buttons, fancy buttonholes, a $10 tip for the boy who delivered it. Baloney, Eddie? Only the part about the tip. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh you're passing the baloney. <laughs> Thanks. Whatever it costs, Eddie, I really appreciate it. Well, don't mention it, George. I'm, I'm just a generous, open-handed type that loves to do things for my friends. Applesauce, Eddie? You're asking me to have some? Yes. Oh, in that case, thanks. As I was saying, George, I'm the generous type, and I never expect a favor in return. When I bought you that smoking jacket, I had no idea that I'd be asking you to appear on my radio program next Thursday night. Applesauce, Eddie. I just took some. This time, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Well, how about you two coming on my show next week? I can arrange it so you won't have to pay any income tax. That's great. How can you do that? It's simple. I won't give you any money. <laughs> but for old times' sake, what do you say, kids, huh? Okay, Eddie, we'll be on your program. Let's get to work on the script. I'll take off my coat. No, and don't, George, no. Don't take the coat off. No, no, no. Hey, wait a minute. There's no smoking jacket under that overcoat. George, you've been robbed. <laughs> huh? The thief must still be here. Don't leave this room, Eddie Cantor. Gracie Allen, I did not steal it. Oh, it's no use, Gracie. We might as well confess. Eddie, we traded the smoking jacket in for an erector set. <laughs> an erector set? For that $300 smoking jacket? That came with gold buttons and velvet lapels and silk lining that lit up and with neon set signs? Of, a set of dishes and a pocket knife? And a round trip to Azusa? Oh, oh, you know about that. Eddie, we know the jacket cost 10 bucks. Gee, I'm sorry, kids. Naturally, now I... I can't ask you to appear on my program for nothing. Honestly, I feel terrible. Well, why don't you pay us? <laughs> no, then I'll feel worse. I'm sorry. Well, I guess it's the only decent thing to do. Come on, you two come over to my house and I'll make it worth your while, huh? Well, thanks again, Eddie. Not at all, Gracie. I'll see you and George on my program next Thursday night. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. Goodbye, Eddie. Goodbye, children. Well, Gracie, what did Eddie give you? George, I'll never have to ask you for money again. You won't? No. Whenever I want some, I'll just pull this pocket knife on you. Oh. Join us again next week when we'll all be back. George Burns, Gracie Allen, Meredith Wilson and his orchestra, yours truly, Bill Goodwin. The George Burns and Gracie Allen Show is written by Paul Henning and Keith Fowler. Until next Thursday, then, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's number one preferred brand of coffee. All Thursday, is good is. to the last drop. Come on, Gracie, I'll take you to a movie. Oh, take me to see The Yearling. I'm dying to see that. Yeah, I understand there's a cute little deer in it. Oh, I'll say there is. Gregory Peck. <laughs>
by cute little deer, I didn't mean Gregory Peck. Oh, Jane Wyman, huh? Now, I mean there's a little dough in the picture. A little dough? I'll bet it makes a fortune. Good night, folks, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Eddie Cantor appeared through the courtesy of Taps Blue Ribbon Beer. And now stay tuned in for Noah Webster Says, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Don't ever say that again. Don't ever say what again? No matter how clean I get my wash, it never looks really white. But it's a fact. Not if you blew with LaFrance. LaFrance gets clothes snow waste, sparkling, dazzling white. Always? Always. Even when you have to dry your clothes indoors, a LaFrance blued wash is a really white wash. And remember, too, LaFrance gets rid of the separate bluing job. You dissolve LaFrance right along with your soap, and it blues while you wash. Hurrah for LaFrance. The bluing flakes used by more women than any other. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. a show that came right out of the vaudeville tradition, the Burns and Allen Show from December 26, 1946, with their old friend Eddie Cantor as guest. George Burns had one of the longest careers in showbiz history. To celebrate his 99th birthday in January 1995, Los Angeles renamed the eastern end of Alden Drive, Gracie Allen Drive. George Burns attended the unveiling ceremony and quipped, and I wish I could do it in that uh, cigar-laden voice of his, but he quipped, It's good to be here at the corner of Burns and Allen. At my age, it's good to be anywhere. Next up, Screen Director's Playhouse on Skywave Audio Theater. Before he went into acting, Welsh-born Ray Milland was a marksman, a horseman, and a pilot in the household cavalry of the British Army. He left the Army to try his hand at acting and got jobs as an extra in several British productions, and then he landed his first major role in 1929 in The Flying Scotsman, and that led to a series of roles in American movies. In 1936, he co-starred with Dorothy L'Amour in The Jungle Princess, and that movie made stars out of both of them. Milan could play good guys, and he could play bad guys, and you can probably guess pretty quickly which it's going to be in alias Nick Beale. This is Ray Milland in Screen Director's Playhouse from December 28, 1950. Screen Director's Playhouse stars Ray Milland, Jan Sterling, production alias Nick Beale, director John Farrell. This is the Screen Director's Playhouse, the Thursday night feature on NBC's all-star festival of comedy, music, mystery, and drama. Brought to you by the makers of Anison for fast relief from the pain of headache, neuritis, and neuralgia, and RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television. Tonight, the Screen Director's Playhouse is pleased to present an adaptation of a compelling play on good and evil. Here now is Alias Nick Beale, starring Ray Milland in his original title role and Jan Sterling as Donna. Alias Nick Beale. 
And so to our play, Act One of Alias Nick Beale. May I introduce myself, the Reverend Dr. Thomas Garfield. As a clergyman, I might be considered as somewhat of an authority upon the subject of evil, but still I offer you the question. Is there really evil in the world, or merely men whose judgments serve them ill? Or are these one and the same thing? Consider. There is evil in the world, and it has many names. Know them now as the thunder sings its hymn to Hades and the lightning lashes at the soul of man. Know the names of evil, sacred in the black books of the fallen universe. Satan, Lucifer, Tamat, Siva, Ariman, Mephistopheles, Beelzebub, the devil. year's end might be an opportune time to consider the problem of evil. Now we do a kind of summing up, a balancing of the books of our lives, a balancing of good and bad. And since we talk of such things, I propose to tell you of an experience I shared with two persons, one you know very well, the former district attorney, Joseph Foster. The other, perhaps you know him, or know him not. His name was Nick Beale. To my knowledge, Nick Beale made his first appearance in the salt mists that blanked the city's waterfront. Like steam rising from the river Styx, the fog wavered and whipped about the China Coast Bar. A sagging pile of timbers that stood upon a pier and faced the bay. In a way, I suppose, it was the end of the earth. And here, Nick Beale was first seen. Hey, where'd you come from? Why, through that door, I believe. How'd you get there? Nothing but pier and water out that way. Is there? Now look, mister, I own this place. I want to know how'd you get in here that I'm addressing the owner of the China Coast. Yeah. Being a person of influence, perhaps you can suggest a man to do an errand for me. What kind of an errand? To deliver a message, this envelope, to a Mr. Joseph Foster. Joseph Foster? Ain't he the DA? He is. But your man will find him at the Central Boys Club not far from here. Well, what do I get out of it? A $20 bill. Let's have it. I'll see that your message gets there. He'll be in the office of the Reverend Dr. Thomas Garfield. His name is Joseph Foster, the Central Boys Club. Keep it up, son. Don't break the rhythm. The kid's good with the punching bag. They're all good kids, Slade. Joe Foster, the fighting district attorney. The apostle of decency. You don't belong here, Slade. Anything you want to say, you can say in my office. Thought you'd be anxious to hear... You really want to convict Hanson? I do. How badly? How badly? The last of our big racketeers, 
A suction pump hitched to every small business in the city? I want him awfully badly, Slade. That's a shame. man like you could be governor. Could I? That's what my people have been saying. Foster's a good man with our crowd pulling for him. Who knows? Of course, Hanson would have to beat that rap you've Check got. it, Slade. With the right sponsor, you the could... The sponsor would have to be out of jail. He will be. Not this time. Yes, Foster. This time. Then why dangle the governorship at me? Because you'll try again, Foster. You'll make a real nuisance of yourself. All right, Harry. That's enough on the bag. Now you're licked, Slade. The case against Hanson is cinched. The books? Oh, don't look so surprised, Foster. I heard. You've issued a subpoena for some account books of his. Well, a funny thing happened about those books. They caught fire this morning. I don't believe you. Caught fire. Destroyed. I'll send Hanson to jail, Slade, and after him... Don't threaten. You've got nothing to threaten with. Well, I'll be seeing you, Governor. I'll lick you yet. I'll lick all of you. Are you finished, Joe? Uh, oh, yes, Tom. Martha's waiting for you in the office. Oh, uh, thanks. Joe, I was just telling Dr. Garfield that... Why, what's wrong, dear? That was Slade I was talking to out there. What was he doing? Capitulating? No, he's burned Hanson's books, or uh, had them burned. But they were your trump card in the case. You're a poor clergyman, Joe. It would seem that you're in trouble. Oh, Joe, what a shame. You know, Dr. Garfield, I think my husband would rather convict Hanson than be governor. I uh, think you phrased it very well, Martha. I'd give my soul to nail him. Your soul, Joe? Oh, I almost forgot. This message came for you, dear. Oh, thank you, Martha. Ah, it'll be good to get home and forget everything for an evening and... What is it, Joe? The note. It says, uh, if you want to nail Hanson, drop around to the China coast at eight tonight. Why, it's almost as if someone heard you. The China coast? Uh, it's a waterfront bar built on a pier. Is the letter signed? No, no, it isn't. It looks as if I've got an anonymous friend. The China Coast at eight. <laughs> it's a little melodramatic. Yes, yes, but so am I, Martha. So I guess I'll be there. My name is Mr. Beale. Now, how do you get to that door? Swim? I looked out there this afternoon. There ain't even a rowboat. On the contrary, my host, there's an entire universe out there. You'll excuse me. I have a friend to meet. Yeah. Good evening, Mr. Foster. You're punctual. So are you, Mr. Uh... May I introduce myself? My card. Nicholas Beale, agent. Agent for what? That depends. Possibly for you. I presumed that when I read your note. Shall we strike directly to the heart of the matter, Mr. Foster? I'd like that very much. You've promised the people a clean city with your conviction of Hanson. But unfortunately, your main evidence is reported destroyed. How do you know about that? It's my business. But supposing it hasn't been destroyed, supposing the books were not... It's too late for supposing. No, Foster. It's never too late to do business with me. What if I could produce those books? And uh, why would you be so obliging? Well, let's say I'm just a humble follower of your work. 
Wayward boys set right, criminals successfully prosecuted. I, well, I admire you. But of course, I'm not completely altruistic. Of course. Uh, how much would it cost me to put my hands on those books? Well, whatever you think is fair. Well, that's an inviting proposition, Mr. Beale. Then I presume you'll accept it. I'll accept it. If you'll accompany me. Oh, it's uh, so confounded dark in here. Here's a light. You find yourself in the offices of the High Water Canning Company. Well... As district attorney, you might just conceivably have an interest in these ledgers. Mr. Beale, I'm interested only in the Hansen books that I... Open them. You'll find Hansen's signature at the bottom of each page. Good Lord. Well, scarcely that. But these are the books. As promised. Mm, these will convict Hansen. Beautiful. And, and not burn. Not even singed. So it appears. Shall we be going? I'm afraid so. Afraid? Well, I have no legal right to take these books, no, uh, no warrants. But, Foster, didn't you say, I believe it was, you'd uh, give your soul to Nail Hansen? Oh, yes, I did, but uh, how do you know what I said? Well, I was merely paraphrasing your enthusiasm. This is your goal, Foster. This is what you want more than anything else in the world. But I... I have no warrant. So in order to abide by one little law, you'll allow a vicious man to keep on breaking bigger laws. Yes, I'd have Hanson, I'd outmaneuver Slade. And all you need is the books, Foster. All right, Mr. Beale. We can go now. My records of the entire incident are quite complete. As you shall see later on, the affair was sufficient to take a clergyman's curiosity. And my notes indicate that Joseph Foster went immediately to his office with the books. From later research, I was able to ascertain that the person, Nick Beale, returned to the China Coast Bar. Teaching us steal drinks, now stay out! Get up. Well, how about giving the lady a hand? Sure. She's that cheap dive. That's not for you. You alone, handsome? Yeah, I'm alone. Well. So am I. I'm looking for Donna Allen. Well, that's me. Yeah. Say, what do you want anyway? It's what you want, Donna. Sapphires as green as tropic waters and silks to thrill your fingers and sables. What are you talking about? You, a girl, quite beautiful. Who are you? Nick Beale. A cop? No. Silks and sables, Donna. And sapphires. Well, what do you want with me? Why don't you come along and find out? <laughs> sure. Sure, why not? Why not? What have I got to lose? <laughs> 
Go in, Donna. No. You afraid? Look. Oh. Oh, it's beautiful. Then go in. Gee, what a place. It's decorated with taste, Donna. You remember what taste is. Yeah, it looks like a dame's apartment. It is. Well, whose? Yours. Me? <laughs> Some joke. Look, mister, what's the deal? Why do you talk like that? Like what? You. Good family, two years of college. You put on an act. What do you know about me? Who says it's an act? I do. You play a role, and down on our tramp. Well, this is the new role. Feel that rug under your feet? Run your hand over the furniture. Look at yourself in the mirror and see how you'd look with the makeup scraped off. No, no, you've got the wrong girl. Have I? A fling at the New York stage, an actor who didn't bother telling you he was married, oh. the struggle at the top of the stairs, accident they call well, it. I'm going to get out of here. Just a minute, Donna. Come with me. Mr. Beale, uh, the man in New York, the actor, nobody knew. And I met him. When? The night he died. Oh. Well, Look, Donna. Sables. Oh. Try it on. Oh, no, no, I shouldn't. It's yours. Here, let me help you. Oh. It's so soft. Look at yourself. Yes. You. In your apartment, surrounded by the things you've always wanted. Oh, I never felt a coat like this. Don't give it up, Donna. Well, what do I have to do? Murder? No, just the opposite. You'll help people. Who? Underprivileged youngsters in a boys' club. And a man named Forster. You're going to help him in his career, help him to be governor. My apartment. Look out this window. I wouldn't have to go down there anymore. Not down into that jungle. Is it a deal, Donna? Look, I think it's going to rain. Now you're working for me? Now I'm working for you. The next time you suffer from pains of headache, neuritis, or neuralgia, take Anison. You'll bless the day you heard of this incredibly fast way to relieve these pains. Now, the reason Anison is so wonderfully fast-acting and effective is this. Anison is like a doctor's prescription. That is, Anison contains not just one, but a combination of medically proven active ingredients in easy-to-take tablet form. Thousands of people have received envelopes containing Anison tablets from their own dentist or physician, and in this way discovered the incredibly fast relief Anison brings from pains of headache, neuritis, or neuralgia. So the next time a headache strikes, take Anison for this wonderfully fast relief. Anison, A-N-A-C-I-N. Anison comes in handy boxes of 12 and 30, economical family-sized bottles of 50 and 100. Get Anison, 
at any drug counter. Here now is Act Two of the Screen Director's Playhouse presentation of Alias Nick Beale, starring Ray Milland as Nick and Jan Sterling as Donna. The question of evil and its existence in the world is, unfortunately, not a theoretical one. Pursuit of truth in the matter must inevitably involve us in specific personalities, in the strengths and weaknesses of individual characters. You'll recall we were discussing District Attorney Joseph Foster and the Hanson case. With the assistance of Nick Beale, Joe Foster did convict Hanson. As a clergyman and as a member of the Reform Party, I was naturally pleased. But Joe, for all his success, was forced to make a confession to his wife, Martha. Do you want to open the champagne, Joe? Mm, quite a celebration. <laughs> well, don't you think you've earned it, dear? Uh, Martha, there's something I've been meaning to tell you about the Hanson case. I, oh? I, uh, I don't feel quite right about it. Not right? About putting a man like that behind bars? Yes, the end was valid enough. But the means to that end... Uh... Well, I'm sure you've done nothing to be ashamed of, Joe. Uh, those books, Hanson's accounts, the, the ones that uh, convicted him... Uh... What about them? I stole them. Joe! I didn't have a warrant to search the cannery. Uh, do you uh, mind drinking with a criminal? But, Joe, you never did anything like that before. And I never will again, either. Not as long as I have a conscience and a wife. Joe, how did it happen this time? I don't really know. That, uh, that Beale fellow, he made it awfully easy. Uh, excuse me, Martha, I'll take it in the library. Remember the champagne, Joe. Hello. Oh, hello, Larry. Oh, thank you. It was a gratifying conviction. Well, I only hope that... What? Oh, I haven't considered the governorship. Uh... Well, of course, I understand the nomination has to be made soon. Larry, if I could lick Slade and his gang, I'd do anything. Uh, Larry, Larry, give me a little time. I'll phone you back. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you. You've made me very proud. Congratulations, Forster. Beal. The governorship. You're moving fast. Who let you in here? Now, is this the hospitality that friends deserve? Joe, shall I bring the champagne? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right, Martha. Uh, Mr. Beal, my wife. Pleasure, Mrs. Forster. You, you must be very proud of your husband. He's going to be our next governor. Why, Joe. Lawrence Evans just phoned, Martha. The Reform Party wants me to run. Well, I... I suppose I should feel elated. Yes, you should. We'll discuss it later, Joe. And in the meantime, Foster, you remember the Hanson books had a price on them. Uh, yes, whatever we considered fair under the circumstances. I'm prepared to pay. Well... Well, real integrity. First completely honest person I've met in... a long time. That's why I'm interested in you. How much do you want, Mr. Beale? Well, let's consider the circumstances. Your friends obviously don't know how you convicted Hanson. 
They don't know that illegal methods were used. Is this blackmail, Mr. Beale? Uh, no, no. Uh, merely pointing out of the facts. Actually, Foster, we'll call it square. I'd prefer to pay. No, instead of taking money from you, I want you to take this envelope. What's in it? $25,000. I'd like to contribute to your campaign expenses. My husband hasn't decided to run. He will. And even if he does, we don't need your help. Does she run things around here, Foster? I think she's right. No strings attached? No, Mr. Beale. You want to lick Slade. The beginning is on the table, the start of your campaign. Slade controls the whole southwest part of the state. With money, you just might defeat him. Without it, you certainly won't. Uh, Martha, oh, I... please, Joe. But if the party caucus decides it wants me to run, uh, I'll need money. I, I'll, uh... Uh, Martha. It's up to you, Joe. Yes, Joe. It's up to you. Hello? Yes, this is Miss Allen. Uh, I want to have some ice sent up. Right away, please. Hmm? You're hitting that bottle too much. Nick. Cut out the drinking. You're going to work, Donna. You give me the creeps. How do you get in here? You like it here? Of course I like it. Then do as you're told. Don't ask questions. I'm sorry. That's better. Tomorrow you'll go to the Central Boys Club. You'll give them a check for $500. For $500. I'll give them a check for $500. $500, Mr. Foster. There you are. That's a lot of money, Miss Allen. <laughs> I'm sorry it isn't more. I hope it'll help you and Dr. Garfield in your work. Have no fear of that. I just hope that you'll let me work with you. You see, I've missed doing social work so much since I moved here, and, well, I'd sort of like to help, too. I think, Miss Allen, you're an answer to many prayers. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll see to the boy. Of course. Mr. Foster, there's only one condition to the gift. Mm, what's that? Well, it's rather personal, but... Well, I'd sort of like to straighten your tie. Oh, I, well, I'm afraid I'm not very presentable. <laughs> well, it doesn't quite match your personality. You should wear something colorful and gay. <laughs> do, you, do you think so? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next time you go shopping for ties, why don't you take me along, huh? Now, that's a date. Hello, Foster. Well, Mr. Beale, uh... I hear you're looking for me. Yes, yes, I called the China Coast. I wanted to, uh... Oh, pardon me, uh, Miss Allen, this is Mr. Beale. How do you do? How do you do? I'll leave you two men to talk. Goodbye, Mr. Foster. Goodbye, Miss Allen. Uh, Mr. Beale, I, uh, I want to return the money you gave me. I see. Your wife? My wife has nothing to do with this. You'll need the money for your campaign. I haven't even been nominated yet. They're holding the nomination meeting tonight, aren't they? Well, yes, but that's no sign that... The... You'll be nominated, all right. Then we'll talk about the money. Boys are waiting, Joe. We'll... Well, who's this? My name is Nick Beale. Uh, this is my co-worker at the club, Reverend Garfield. Mr. Beale, have we... Have we met before? No. No, we haven't. Strange. Your face, it reminds me of someone, something. One of those faces? On the contrary. It's an extraordinary face. Quite medieval, like a woodcut. Something on parchment. Have you ever had your portrait painted, Mr. Beale? Ah, uh, yes, some time ago. 
Perhaps we've passed close to one another at some time, Dr. Garfield, but we've never collided. No, I guess not. Not until now. Well, Joe, the boys are waiting outside. Uh, you see, Mr. Beale, every afternoon, someone reads a passage from the Bible. Uh, perhaps uh, you would do us the honor today. Me? No. No, I don't know anything about that stuff. I've marked the passage right here. It's your book. Read it yourself. Very well. Uh, gentlemen, today, gentlemen, we read one of the Psalms of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Know the names of evil, sacred in the black book of the fallen universe. Satan, Lucifer, Tamat, Siva, Araman, Mephistopheles... Beelzebub, the devil. third act of the Screen Director's Playhouse presentation of Alias Nick Beale continues in just a moment. But now, here's a word from RCA Victor. There's only one thing on earth more enjoyable than an RCA Victor TV set, and that's an RCA Victor TV radio phonograph combination. Just ask any family who got one for Christmas. RCA Victor packs the finest of three entertainment worlds into these magnificent combinations. You get two powerful radios, AM and FM by RCA Victor, world leader in radio. You get superb Victrola phonograph with two changers to play all record speeds by RCA Victor, first in recorded music. And you get million-proof TV, proven in well over a million homes by RCA Victor, first in television. You'd think to look at these combinations with their beautiful cabinets and their fabulous contents that they were intended for millionaires only. Instead, as your RCA Victor dealer will show you specifically, they actually cost much, much less than you'd pay for comparable instruments separately. Here's wishing you a happy new year with the happiest instrument on earth, an RCA Victor combination. You are listening to the Screen Director's Playhouse, the Thursday night feature on NBC's All-Star Festival, brought to you by the makers of Anison for fast relief from the pain of headache, neuritis, and neuralgia, and RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television. The Screen Director's Playhouse presentation of alias Nick Beale, starring Ray Milland and Jan Sterling, will continue in just a moment after a short pause for station identification. The discussion of evil in the world which I have proposed is by no means a discussion of theology. 
The story which I tell is a consideration of evil in its, uh, what shall I say, its more practical aspects. We have discussed certain events of the afternoon on which I first met Nick Beer. I shall continue by relating the events of that evening when Joseph Foster received a caller, a Mr. Finch. Uh, Mr. Finch, my wife and I have a social engagement. I'm afraid that uh, I... That's all right, Mr. Foster. I haven't got much time either. I've got to get out of town. If you'll just explain... Uh, look, I was the bookkeeper at the Highwater Canary. The Highwater... Then you must have been connected with Hanson. I just kept his books on the side, Mr. Forster. Nothing illegal. Well, then why didn't you come forward during the trial? Well, you ought to know why. You would have received police protection, Mr. Finch. Maybe. But why would you want me to testify when you knew those books were fake? Faked? Well, sure, they were faked. I burned the real ones myself. I saw every page go up and smoke. But that's impossible. <laughs> Look, you sure got me in a spot. I know that you had a rig up some way getting Hanson, but now they think I didn't burn the books. I need traveling money fast. Mr. Finch, I warn you that the district attorney isn't a very safe subject for blackmail. Well, okay, but I'll have to have that police protection then. <laughs> One way or the other, you help me or the cops help me. Is Nick Beale connected with this? I don't know anybody named Beale. Joe, the whites have arrived. Oh, I'll be right there, Martha. I can't talk further right now, Mr. Finch. Can you be in my office at 10 o'clock tonight? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Very well. And I'll see that Mr. Beale is there, too. Yes, Mr. Finch? Well, I did. Did you bring what I asked for? I found the pipe stand, just like you said on Forster's desk. There were seven pipes. I took this one. Thank you, Mr. Finch. You may carry it. I sure can use that money you promised me. Was there any message, Mr. Finch? Oh, he says he wants to meet me in his office at 10 tonight. He wants you to be there, too. Then there's nothing more to be done, is there? <laughs> just my money. Then come along, Mr. Finch, and I'll get it. <laughs> you know, the way he acted, Mr. Beale, I'd sway he thought the books were the real thing, but I burned them with my own... Nick, I've talked to Hanson's bookkeeper. So what? He says the books were burned, that the ones I produced in court were faked. They worked, didn't they? That's beside the point. What did the bookkeeper want? Traveling money. Shakedown? I'm not sure. Why else would he pick tonight? Tonight the party's deciding on his candidate for governor. I don't know, but I regret ever having been involved with you. I have your money here, the 25000 Please take it back. What's the fuss over the books? What if they were faked? I'd have to admit a mistrial and set Hanson free. And blow the governorship sky high? That doesn't matter. I've prided myself on being a man of conscience. I intend to act according to that conscience. Hello? Hello, Jake. Oh, hello, Larry. Did you know the committee was meeting? Yes, yes, I knew the committee was uh, meeting. They've nominated you for voter. Oh, they... Oh, they have? Your chance to lick Slade. Well, uh... Please tell the committee uh, I'd be uh, very pleased to accept the nomination. <laughs> you know, Forster, I might even see my way clear to make that $50,000. 
Will you check these posters, please, Miss Allen? Oh, yes, they'll be fine, but I think you better print Mr. Foster's name in uh, blue instead of silver. Right. You take to politics very well, Miss Allen. Why, thank you, Dr. Garfield. Oh, I'm having a wonderful time. And doing a service for my state, too. Uh, Nick, I, I believe I'm late. Oh, hello, Donna. Hello, Mr. Foster. Mr. Beale. Hello, Miss Allen. Foster, the Evans Committee is expecting you. Oh, let them wait. Donna, you're lucky you've never made a speech to 2,000 women. The governor was magnificent. I knew he'd be. Ah, Donna, I wish everybody had as much faith in me as you do. Everybody doesn't know you as well as I do. Thank you. Come on, Nick. Oh, Miss Allen. Yes? Don't overplay it, sugar. Coming, Foster. Oh. We've been waiting for you, Joe. Oh, sorry, Larry. What's up? We've been examining the Stafford report. What about it? It indicates you'll run 100,000 votes short of a victory. What can we do to change that? Just keep working and hope that something happens. I think we'll have to do something more than that, Mr. Evans. And what would you suggest, Mr. Beale? Make a deal with Slade and his downstate machine. Nick, you're not serious. You want to win, don't you? Not that much. I'm surprised you'd make such a suggestion. Gentlemen, shall we continue with the meeting? <laughs> Foster, that's the last committee man gone. And your chances for the governor's mansion gone with him. Oh, things aren't that bad. No, no, as a matter of fact, they aren't. What do you mean? I mean, whether you like the Slade deal or not, it's already made. What? I set it up yesterday. You? Slade's gonna play ball. You're as good as in. Get out of my office. All right. Sure. But first, first you're gonna listen to me. The trouble with your kind, Foster, is that you're colorblind. It's all white or black. No grays, no in-betweens. Well, if you value those ideals of yours, you better start seeing the grays. You want to give the people of the state a square deal, okay. But first you have to be governor. And first you have to be elected. And to do that, you have to pay the gray side to beat the black. Either that, or the black wins. Are you through? For now, yes. Donna? Yes? You're going to have a date tonight. Who with? The next governor. I'll drop by your place and explain things. In the meantime, remember you're a lady. How can I forget? Oh. Dr. Garfield. Mr. B. I've been thinking about you. Still trying to remember this face of mine? Yes. Isn't it strange? It's not you. Not your face. It's... As if you were a shadow. And I'm trying to remember the substance that casts the shadow. Well, sometime we'll talk about it, just you and I. Sometime. When the shadow and substance come together. Oh, it's you. It's me. A visit from your benefactor, Donna. Looks as if you were wrong about tonight. Foster hasn't phoned. He won't phone. He'll come directly here. What makes you so sure? He's had a fight with his wife. He's told her that I've made an alliance between himself and a man named Slade. She's acted very sanctimonious. She's told Foster it'd be best to give up the governorship. Now he's confused, alone. 
He remembers your sweetness and admiration. He'll come here. He's got nowhere else to go. Shall I be nice to him? You'll do exactly as I say. Listen, Donna, and remember. Yes. He'll ask your advice about the deal with Slade. I approve. Not right away. First, you ask what his wife thinks. When he tells you, you'll become angry. Is she trying to wreck his career? Is she trying to wreck your career? Then he'll say he wishes that Martha felt the way you do. And that, Donna, is the cue for your big speech. Go on, I'm a quick study. Then get this. Joseph, I have a confession to make. Sometimes I wish we weren't married so that we could... Oh, I've shocked you, haven't I? I've shocked you, haven't I? Then he answers, no, no, you haven't, Donna, because I have a confession of my own. Each day when I go to campaign headquarters, I'm afraid you won't be there. Then when I see you, I know everything's all right. And the times you've had lunch together, do you remember how many, Donna? Uh, six. And each a red-letter day in my life. Now you, you say, Joseph, don't say anymore. Mm, Joseph, don't say anymore. But I have to, it's all bubbling out. Now, Donna, you. No, Joseph, no. And he says, what's the matter? And you, Donna, I'm frightened. He says there's nothing to be frightened of, but you take his arm. Please, Joseph, go now. I'll see you in the morning, darling. Then he says, I'll be counting the minutes. Brother, how corny can you get? Don't be a critic, Donna. Just an actress. But he isn't going to say any of those things. Your guest has arrived. Let him in, Donna. I'll wait in the other room. Uh, Donna, I... I oh, hello, Joseph. I happened to be in the neighborhood, and I thought... Uh, oh, please come in. I'm glad you came. I was lonely. Well, sit down, Joseph. Thank you. Ah, oh, you look tired. Yes, I am. Is it that deal Nick made with the machine? Yes. Uh, Donna, what do you think about Slade? Me? Well, I shouldn't advise you, Joseph. What does Martha think? She's very much opposed to the alliance. She doesn't realize how important it is that you win. Important for the state. She accused me of... of compromising with everything I detested. But, Joseph, doesn't she know she's wrecking your political career? Oh, Donna, I wish Martha felt the way you do. Oh. Joseph, I have a confession to make. Sometimes I wish that you weren't married so that we could... I've shocked you, haven't I? No. No, you haven't. I have a confession of my own. Each morning when I go to campaign headquarters, I'm afraid you won't be there. And then when I see you, everything's all right again. And the times we've had lunch, do you remember how many? Six. Six. And each, each one, one a red, red letter, letter day, day in my memory. Joseph, don't say anything more. What's, What's the, the matter? matter? Well, I'm frightened. Well, there's, there's nothing to be frightened of. Joseph, look, I'll see you in the morning. All right, all right Donna. I'll be, I'll be counting the minutes. minutes. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> you weren't bad, Donna. Who are you? What are you? Putting speeches in people's mouths. Pushing nice old guys around. Pushing me around. You don't like it? Then get out. Back to the China coast. Oh, no. And stay in line. You're doing a good job, Donna. This is the job you were made for. He'll run for election. <laughs> Dr. Garfield, some more return. Thank you, Mr. Beale. Oh, Joe. Yes, Larry. It looks bad. The 21st and 22nd districts belong to the Slade machine. When they come in, they're liable to swamp us right out. Well, maybe not. Hey, listen, listen, everybody. Report for the 
22nd District. Foster leads by 60,984. What? That's a a miraculous margin. It should since the election. Yes, that's Slade's territory. You didn't make any arrangement with him, did you? No, Larry, I didn't. Uh, Joe. Yes, Tom. Look who just came in. That's Slade, isn't it? Yes, it is. Joe, what's the meaning of this? I'm with you, Foster. Don't get into a panic. Well, Governor. Hello, Slade. Looks like we're in business. Hello, Evans. Anything from the 21st yet? Slade, in business. What does that mean? Is what I said. I wouldn't worry about the 21st, Foster. That 50 grand you gave me will pay off about three votes to the dollar. Joe, did you give this man $50,000? I did, Larry. Where'd you get it? I gave it to him. You, Beale. I should have known. It was just a loan. I, I'll pay it back. Everybody, listen, everybody! Here it is, a flash. The opposition just gave up. The election has been conceded. Joseph Foster is our next governor. Larry, Larry, if you'll just let me explain. You're governor now. You don't have to explain to anybody. But Slade and Beale. Good night, Joseph. Don't worry, Foster. They'll come around. How about a celebration, everybody? Party's on me. You coming, Joe? Yes, yes, in a minute. Oh, Donna, Donna. Darling, darling, you're governor. You did it. No, let's let's go where we can talk alone. Here, in this this room. Joseph, this is no time to look so gloomy. Lawrence Evans. He walked out on me tonight. The Slade deal. But it's all over now. It isn't over. I still have to justify myself. Oh, Donna, I I want to be governor. The flattery, the authority, the prestige. I, I sound very egotistical, don't I? No, you don't. You sound very human, and I know you'll do the best job you can. I wonder, this Slade and Nick Beale. Look, get away from Nick, Joseph. He's... Yes? Well, nothing. I'm just silly. Look, they're waiting for you, the celebration. You go on, I'll join you in a minute, hmm? All right, Donna. Uh, sure. <laughs> Donna? Oh. Well, Nick... That was quite a performance. He's in trouble. Yes, he is. Why don't you leave him alone? What's Foster ever done to you? Nothing. Look, he's decent and good. Why don't you forget about him? Yeah, I'll forget about him, too. You know, you and I, Nick, we could have a lot of fun together. Why, you stupid tramp. (gasps) I'll toss you back in the gutter where you belong. Yes, you can forget Foster, and I'm taking care of him myself tonight. I'm glad you're here, Nick. I wanted to talk to you. Is this victory, Foster? The governor sits alone in his darkened home, deserted by all but his friends? Who are my friends? Well, me for one. I'm the only friend you need. That's very funny. My wife has left me, you know. Martha? Oh, that's too bad. It's taken me that to make me realize what a complete mess you've got me into. It's not me, Foster. It's your reform party, pals. You seen the late papers? No. They've renounced you? What? Kicked the new governor right out of the party. (sighs) So it's happened. Well, I'm not surprised. I've got a lot of making up to do. We're finished, Nick. Howie, you don't know how much trouble you're in. I'm afraid I do. No, you don't. You remember Mr. Finch, 
Hansen's bookkeeper. Well, he's dead. They found his body at the waterfront. Remember the coroner's verdict? Yes. Accidental. Well, it isn't accidental anymore. It's murder. Why didn't I hear about this? Because somehow, Foster, the police have linked you to the killing. That's impossible. Someone tipped them that Finch was in your home the night he was killed, and they found something on his body, a pipe. A pipe that's been traced to a set of seven given to you three years ago. Ridiculous. The pipe set is right here on my desk. Count them. One, two, three, four, five, six... I guess this is going to kind of interfere with your being governor. You know, for weeks I've had a feeling that I'd never really make it. Forget the feeling, Foster. I can pull you out of this. How? Now you're anxious to do business with me again, aren't you? You know, I'm getting a little tired of sticking out my neck and then having you chop at it. This time I'd like some protection. And I'd like it in writing. (sighs) Write out your terms. I already have. Here. It includes a small reward for services rendered. The post of Keeper of the State Seal. But that doesn't even pay a salary. I don't mind. Oh, and there's a sort of default clause, too. You'd better read it. In case I fail to make the above appointment, I do hereby agree to accompany the aforesaid Nicholas Beale to the island of Almas Perdidas. Almas Perdidas? What island is that? Just an island. What difference does it make? You'll give me the state job the minute you become governor. Well, what about your end of the bargain, the the, the Finch affair? Sign the agreement. Hand me that pen. Yeah. There you are. Fine, clear signature. Uh, Nick, the murder, Finch. Oh, the police will come here. They'll check the pipes in your desk rack. Then they'll cross you off the list. How? If a pipe is missing, what... Count them, Foster. Well, I just did. Count them again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You're jittery, Foster. You should be on top of the world. Yes, I... uh, Well, this is quite a step in a man's life. Relax. In another half hour, you'll be the governor. Yes. Is it a good feeling, Foster? The governor-elect in the governor's mansion, the last delicious waiting before the inauguration? No, it's not a good feeling. But look how far you've come, from the crime-busting district attorney to the governor of the state. How very far I've come. The only friend in the audience outside is Tom Garfield, not even Donna. Oh, forget it. Oh, I wanted to tell you. Slade and the boys say they'd like a couple of additional baubles. What is it now? Uh, two members on the Power Commission, two more on the Marshlands Committee, and the chairman of the Liquor Control Board. Well, that's almost every key post. Uh, not quite. You still have the Fish and Game Commission. And me as Keeper of the State Seal, unless you prefer the forfeit clause. You'll get what you want. I'm sure I will. Oh, and I almost forgot. The fellows think you ought to drop that 200000 for boys' clubs. No, Nick. That stays. What do you care? You've got what you wanted. This isn't the way I wanted it. Oh, cut it out, Foster. You know what's wrong with you? You still think of yourself as a reformer. I've done what I thought was right. You've made yourself governor. You took every shortcut, every compromise, every means. But I I didn't mean to. Uh, I can't be what you say I am. <laughs> no? Try to change back. Just try. Oh, Mr. Foster, the ceremony's about to begin, sir. Nick, Nick, you represent everything I've ever struggled against. And you've made one mistake. 
You think I've stopped struggling. I know it. They're waiting for you, Foster. I'll stay here and listen to your speech on the radio. Don't be too surprised, Nick. Faithfully discharge the duties of the office of governor according to the best of my ability. Mr. Justice, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, a few weeks ago, the Reform Party issued a statement renouncing me for certain political commitments I allegedly made. I never answered that statement because it is absolutely true. <laughs> to my eternal shame, I did make alliances with various groups of corrupt figures. Now I realize those alliances will prevent me from properly serving my state. Therefore, I resign the governorship in favor of an honest man, the lieutenant governor, who was once my friend. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you, you have just heard what is certainly the most astounding inaugural address in the, in the history of this, or, I believe, any other state. Uh, as you heard your... How did you like my speech, Nick? Fine. Impressive. Virtue triumphant. It uh, doesn't uh, disappoint you? Not at all. Hmm. Your plans haven't quite worked out. On the contrary, Foster, they've worked very well. What are your plans now? I intend to find my wife. But first, there's an agreement to be settled. A man of integrity such as yourself, you wouldn't ignore a contract. We can go into that later. No, Foster. Now. You failed to make me keeper of the state seal. In forfeiture, you must accompany me to the island of Almas Perdidas. I have no time now. It's a short journey. My, uh... Last commitment? After this, you'll be free. Free. Then let's go, Nick. We'll leave by the back door. Joseph. Donna, what are you doing here? Please, Joseph, get away from Nick. Your speech, you did right. Now you're free. Donna, your clothes. Everything else belongs to Nick. I'm breaking away, Joseph. You can do it, too. Thank you, Donna. But first, I must pay a visit to the island of Almas Perdidas. Come along, Foster. Our transportation's waiting on the China coast. <laughs> Goodbye, Donna. <laughs> Miss Allen, was Joseph here? Dr. Garfield, he just left. Through there with Nick Beale. He's taking Joseph somewhere, somewhere terrible. My dear, you're almost hysterical. Where is this place? He called it the island of Almas Perdidas. Why, that's Spanish. It means... means... The island of lost souls. Now, he's an evil man, Dr. Garfield. He's a devil. A devil? Yes. Miss Allen, do you know where they're going from here? Yes. Nick said the China coast. Oh, why can't he drive fast? Miss Allen, you call Nick Beale a devil. Did you mean that literally? Oh, no, not in the horns and tail kind of way. Perhaps I remember how he was afraid to read this book. The Bible? The Bible, and that satanic cast of countenance, the fallen angel, Lucifer. Oh, but Dr. Garfield, this is the 20th century. Nobody believes in those things anymore. Perhaps the devil also knows it's the 20th century. Oh. Here, this is it, the China coast. Here, driver. Come on, Miss Allen. This confounded fog. I think I saw something moving ahead. They might be at the end of the pier. Oh, oh look. 
Joseph! Donna, Tom! Oh, thank God we're in time. God's in his heaven, Donna. I'm here. Joe, you're not going with Veal. You're wrong, Garfield. He's given his word on paper, haven't you, Foster? I have. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. The contract cannot be broken. I don't believe there is a contract, Mr. Beale. No? Take a look. Everything is in order. My company has negotiated quite a few of these. I see. Yes, it appears that he did sign your paper. What company do you represent, Mr. Beale? A trading company. Trading in what? In people of a certain nature. I also represent a trading company, Mr. Beale. It would seem that we're competitors. But my firm has won out in this particular deal. My contract, please. Of course. Do you mind if I place it in this Bible? Now take your contract, Mr. Beale. Your contract. And the book. Now. Come on, Foster, we are late. Not without the contract. Give me the Bible, Tom. Now, Nick, I'm ready, if you are. No, not with that book. The book goes with me, Nick. You've jockeyed me into a nice little morality play, haven't you? The same old props it's always been bell and candle and that worn-out book of yours. Are we going, Nick? No. No, we're not going. Joseph. It's all right, Miss Allen. It's all right. You've saved yourself, Foster, just in time. You won't be going this time. Garfield's firm has won this one after all. We'll win others, too. But you won't win all of them. Some of them belong to me. And perhaps Foster and Donna will meet again one day, when I can be of service to you. We'll be waiting for another battle. And who'll win? Who'll win? You or me? So ends our Screen Director's Playhouse presentation of Alias Nick Beale. Our stars will return in just a moment. Next Thursday, the Screen Director's Playhouse brings an adventure tale taken from the pages of a vivid history. Our motion picture story for the first time on the air is Prince of Foxes, directed by Henry King. And in the starring role at his dashing best will be the distinguished Douglas Fairbanks. And supporting him will be the 20th century Fox starlet, Joyce McKenzie. And now, here again are tonight's stars, Ray Milland and Jan Sterling. Uh, well, Ray, tonight you were everything a devil ought to be. Well, thank you, Jan. Thank you. But I learned all about that sort of thing from a devilishly fine director. Ladies and gentlemen, John Farrow, who directed Alias Nick Beale, was supposed to be with us tonight. But illness has kept him at home. So I'm afraid you've been done out of an opportunity of meeting one of Hollywood's finest motion picture artists. Ray, I talked to John Farrow on the phone this afternoon, and, uh, you know, he pointed out something about Alias Nick Beale that I didn't even realize. What was that, Jan? 
Well, that the leading man and the leading lady didn't exchange a single embrace, not a single kiss. There wasn't even a love scene. Why, Jan, I thought you knew that's the most devilish part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, Jan. Good night, everyone. Good night. McBeal was presented through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures, whose current release is Mr. Music, starring Bing Crosby, who is celebrating his 20th year in show business. Ray Milland will shortly be seen in the Paramount picture, Something to Live For, and Jan Sterling will soon appear in the Paramount film, Ace in the Hole. Tonight's cast included Theodore Von Eltz as Joseph Foster, Herbert Butterfield as Reverend Garfield, Lois Corbett as Martha Foster, Frank Gerstle as Larry Evans, Tony Barrett as Finch, Jack Crucian as the bartender, and Raymond Burr as Slade. Alias Nick Beale was adapted for radio by Richard Allen Simmons. The Screen Director's Playhouse is produced by Howard Wiley and directed by Bill Carn. This is Jimmy Wallington speaking and inviting you to listen again next Thursday when, for the first time on the air, we present Prince of Foxes, starring Douglas Fairbanks with Joyce McKenzie and screen director Henry King. Listen again next week to Screen Director's Playhouse, the Thursday night feature on NBC's all-star festival of comedy, music, mystery, and drama. Listen tomorrow evening to the one and only Duffy's Tavern, the Friday night feature of the all-star festival. Join Archie and the gang at Duffy's Tavern tomorrow night on NBC. Ray Milland encoring his role from the 1949 movie Alias Nick Beale. That was Screen Director's Playhouse from December 28, 1950. A story about selling out principles for politics and all of those grays between the blacks and the whites of moral decisions. You could always tell when Nick Beale was uh, coming your way by that tune he was whistling. It was the cradle song from the opera Jocelyn by Benjamin Godard. Right around the corner, the greatest detective of them all. This is Skywave Audio Theater. The most dramatized character in fiction is probably Sherlock Holmes. A contemporary of the world's most famous detective was William Schwenk Gilbert, who wrote the storylines and lyrics for a series of operettas with music by Sir Arthur Sullivan. Gilbert's uh, complicated plots got to be a bone of contention between Gilbert and Sullivan, and tonight, The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes is going to borrow one of those plots. 
Our story is called The Iron Box. It stars Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in a broadcast from December 31st, 1945. Good evening, Doctor. Good evening, Mr. Bartell. Drop your usual chair. Thank you. Uh, that's it. Well, did you enjoy the Christmas holidays? <laughs> well, I've, I've had a whale of a time, thank you, but I don't think I can face a turkey or a mince pie for at least another year. <laughs> uh, how about you, Doctor? Oh, I had a very pleasant week, too, my boy. Parties, visitors, and a flattering number of Christmas messages to be answered. Oh, say, you got a new pipe. Is that a Christmas present? Yes, new pipe, new tobacco pouch, and a pound of my favorite tobacco. All of them sent to me from London by an old client and a friend of mine. Ian Dunbar. An old client, huh? Well, do you mean he was one of your patients, or was he someone that you and the great Sherlock Holmes helped? The latter, Mr. Bartell. As a matter of fact, it was receiving this gift that reminded me of the story I've decided to tell you tonight. A story in which Sir Ian Dunbar played a prominent part. And how did it begin? The day before New Year's Eve in 1899. Sherlock Holmes and I sat in opposite corners of a first-class railway carriage as we sped towards Edinburgh in the Flying Scotsman. What took you and Sherlock Holmes up there, Doctor? It started off as a holiday visit, Mr. Bartell. My old friend Sir Walter Dunbar had asked Holmes and me to spend a few days with him at Dunbar Castle, about 20 miles outside Edinburgh. After we left King's Cross Station, Holmes, his sharp, eager face framed in his deer-stocking cap, dipped into the bundle of fresh papers which he'd brought with him. We left Bedford far behind us before he thrust the last one of them under the seat, leaned across and offered me his cigar. Careful cigar, Watson. No, no, thanks, Awful. I'll, I'll stick to my pipe. Flying Scotsman's living up to its name. We're going splendidly. Our present rate is 53 and a half miles an hour. Oh, I haven't noticed the quarter-mile post. Nor have I, but the telegraph posts on this line are 60 yards apart. With the aid of a watch, the calculation is a simple one. Watson, my dear fellow, we have several hours ahead of us. Now, tell me more about Sir Walter Dunbar. I have a feeling that he is in some kind of trouble, or that you haven't wanted to talk about it. Well, it's not exactly trouble, Holmes, but there's a strange problem that confronts the Dunbars, a problem that'll be settled at midnight tomorrow. Oh, indeed. Night of New Year's Eve, eh? Yes, exactly, but to, to really appreciate the story, I have to begin by telling you of the death of old Sir Thomas Dunbar. The father of the present baronet, I suppose. Yes, he was severely wounded at Waterloo, though he managed to last out long enough to get back to Dunbar Castle. The story goes that as he lay there on his deathbed, he told his wife of his plans for their unborn child. Uh, dinner grave, lass. <laughs> I'll fetch the baronet's here home from Waterloo. What if I fetch the mortal wound as well? Oh, hush, lass. I'm not afraid to die. All that niggles me is that I shall never see the child you bear. Is Sir Wattle Scott no coming yet? Uh, can he visit the deathbed of his old friend? Uh, who's there? Is that you, Sandy Murdoch? Aye, Thomas. It's me. Uh, I'm leaving an unborn son behind me when I die. Now, I don't trust women or children or banks for that matter. Put the best part of my wealth and gold in the big iron box you'll find under the bed. The money's there. I and something else for a rainy day. You have to keep that box in trust for me, Sandy. You can turn it over to my boy on the New Year's Eve before his 21st birthday. And he'll be a man and wise enough to know how to use it. You understand, Sandy? Right, Thomas. But supposing your bairn's a girl. A girl? 
I tell you, it'll be a boy. And we'll name him Walter after my good friend, Sir Walter Scott. interesting story, Watson. And that child, of course, is the gentleman we are going to see now, Sir Walter Dunbar. Exactly. And the first baronet was a friend of Sir Walter Scott, while his son can boast of your acquaintance. Why, it's a, it's a family singularly rich in literary friendships. That's not very funny, Holmes. Uh, to continue, I suppose you can guess what happened. Sir Thomas carefully drew up a document to specify. The New Year's Eve before the baronet's 21st birthday. And the poor child was born on February the 29th. <laughs> It was a leap year. Oh, so poor Sir Walter is still waiting for his iron box full of gold. Yes, he'll be 84 next year, and yet legally, with only one birthday every four years in the eyes of the law, he'll at last be 21. A most amusing situation, <laughs> though I'm afraid Sir Walter finds it far from entertaining. Hmm? The lawyers must have been extremely scrupulous in abiding by the letter of the document. Yes, old Sandy Murdoch is dead now, of course. But he too is a great-grandson, William Murdoch, who still handles the Dunbar estate. He'll be at the castle tonight to formally hand over the iron box. I'm delighted you accepted the holiday invitation of Sir Walter. My dear fellow, I've needed a rest, but uh, I've always loathed too strict a one. This situation may pose a nice little problem for me. Problem? Yes, I'm reasonably certain that the aged Sir Walter Dunbar will not get his iron box full of gold on this New Year's Eve either. But we shall see, old fellow. We shall see. <laughs> Dr. Watson, I'm glad to see you and Mr. Holmes here at the castle. Thank you, my boy. Holmes, this is Ian Dunbar, Sir Walter's grandson. How do you do, Mr. Dunbar? I'm very proud to meet you, Mr. Holmes. I've heard a lot about you. A grandfather will be down in a few moments. Let's go into the library, shall we? Well, I imagine Sir Walter's quite excited about tonight's ceremony, isn't he? <laughs> Wouldn't you be? If you'd waited 63 years too long for an inheritance. <laughs> Thank the Lord I had the foresight to be born on the prosaic date of August the 21st. <laughs> Even if your grandfather's death, you would be the next baronet, I take it. Yes, Mr. Holmes. You see, my father was killed two months ago at Mafeking. Yes, yes, I read about it in the papers, my boy. I'm, I'm very sorry. Thank you, Doctor. The opening of the box isn't going to be the only ceremony at midnight. Dorothy and I are announcing our engagement. Uh, Dorothy? Uh, Dorothy Small. She and her father are staying here, too. My congratulations. Yes, yes, indeed, Ian. Indeed, mine, too. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's been quite a battle with her father, though. He's a businessman and isn't impressed with titles when they aren't accompanied by a suitable income. But when we told him about the inheritance, he relented and gave his consent. Ah, here's Dorothy now. Dorothy, darling, I want you to meet two friends of mine, Mr. Sherlock Holmes and uh, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Now, how do you do, Miss Ball? Uh, how are you, my dear? From what this young man's been telling us, I... I gather that congratulations are in order. Thank you. <laughs> I finally persuaded Father that Ian would make a worthy son-in-law. For a while, I was afraid we'd have to elope to Gretna Green. Live in a cottage on bread and cheese and love and brave the parental wrath, just as they do in the storybooks. Oh, Sir Walter, there you are. Uh, Watson, my dear boy. Uh, how are you? And this must be your friend Sherlock Holmes. How do you do, Sir Walter? <laughs> Vera well for a young nipper who'll be 21 at midnight. <laughs> oh. Uh, gentlemen, may I introduce Mr. Herbert Small? How do you do, sir? I believe that we have to congratulate you on the engagement of your daughter. Hmm. 
And that was supposed to remain a secret until midnight. Mm-hmm. The Dunbar box was finally opened. Oh, didn't be grouchy, Herbert. The children are in love, and I'm going to settle money on Ian. And it's New Year's Eve. Let's enter into the spirit of the occasion. Bring out the glasses, Ian. I've had some bottles of my special pride put out. It's the finest port in Scotland. The cream of Dunbar. My father laid the first bottle down the year before I was born. And a drink of the brew will surely warm the cockles of your heart. My mouth's watering already, Sir Walter. When is this uh, lawyer fellow, young Murdoch, getting here? Oh, any moment, Herbert. As soon as he arrives, we'll have dinner, and then we'll be ready for the evening ceremonies. He's bringing the famous iron box with him, Sir Walter? If he doesn't, they won't get any dinner, Holmes. Ian, pass the glasses around, my boy. Ah, there you are, Murdoch. Good evening, Sir Walter. Oh, you've got the box with you, I see. Now the party's complete. Oh, let me introduce you. Miss Small, her father, Mr. Small, my grandson, Ian, you know. Mr. Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson. How do you do, sir? I'm sorry I'm late, Sir Walter. My train was delayed. Oh, that's all right, Murdoch. You're here, and you brought the box. That's all that matters. Ian... Give our young lawyer a drink. Here, I'll help you pour it. I must say that this is rather exciting, Holmes. The famous iron box with its inheritance of gold. Yes, and from the size of the box, at a rough guess, I should estimate its cubic content in gold at around 5,000 pounds. Not a vast sum, perhaps, to a businessman like Mr. Small, but a windfall to an impecunious Scottish baronet. Yes, I suppose it is. A strong young man, Mr. Murdoch. How do you mean strong, Holmes? A box that size, full of golden sovereigns, would weigh a considerable amount. And yet the lawyer carried it single-handed. And now that we're all assembled, I'm going to propose a toast. Though it's still some hours off yet, let's drink to the new year. It means a lot to some of us. To 1900! 1900! We should toast more than just 1900, Sir Walter. We should drink to the new century that's about to begin. Good idea, Dorothy. Oh, I'm afraid that wouldn't be quite appropriate, Miss Small. To be accurate, the 20th century won't begin until January the 1st, 1901, and not 1900. Of course. That's it. Dorothy, I'm afraid your wedding can't take place for some time yet. Father, what are you talking about? I read an article in The Guardian the other day that said just the same thing as you, Dr. Watson. And what's more, it said something even more important. It said that 1900 is not a leap year. Oh, rubbish. Leap year comes every four years. There was one in 1896, then obviously 1900 is one. I think Mr. Small may be right. What do you say, Mr. Holmes? Do you know? Well, I hope no one would bring up this point. <laughs> it's the a little problem I referred to on the train, my dear Watson. Yes, Holmes, for heaven's sake, answer. Is 1900 a leap year or no? I'm afraid it's not, Sir Walter. No? Because of a slight imbalance that would otherwise be produced in the calendar. Of the even century years, only those divisible by 400 are leap years. In other words, 1600 was a leap year, the year 2000 will be a leap year, but uh, 1800 and 1900 are not leap years. Then you have no birthday next year, Sir Walter, and I'm afraid I can't open the box tonight. And the Dunbars won't get their inheritance. And you, my dear, don't marry for a few more years. I won't allow you to marry a pauper. Mr. Holmes, are you sure of your facts? I'm very much afraid that I am, young man. Oh, this is terrible. I can't stand anymore. No, 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 don't take it too badly, Sir Walter. Here, here, sir. Here, drink this. Uh, That's it. After all, you only have to wait another four years. Another four years? At my age, young man, at my age. Oh, no. I shall never live that long. Aye, what is it, Angus? Dinner is prepared, Sir Walter. You can serve it as soon as you're ready, sir.
Sir Walter's gone to his room. The young lovers are nearly in tears. And Small and the lawyer Murdoch seem to be positively gloating. Yes, a most depressing atmosphere in which to welcome the new year. But let us at least make the best of it. I think I'll go and have a talk with Sir Walter. And you, my dear chap, why not try and cheer up the young folks? Mm. Some of your experiences in India may make them take their minds off their trouble. Yes, quite an idea. I'll join you in the library. Call me if you, if you want me, Holmes. Ah, there you are, my dears. Hello, Dr. Watson. All alone in front of the fire, eh? <laughs> I'm afraid we're not in very good spirits. Sir. Oh, nevertheless, I'll sit down here and join you, if you don't mind. Misery loves company, you know. <laughs> You're very kind, Doctor. Oh, I was just trying to persuade Ian to elope with me. But he's being most ungallant. He won't even consider it. How can I, darling? I've got under 200 pounds a year in my own right. How could we live on that? I was counting on the money the grandfather was going to give us to get me started. Now, 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 Miss Small, a little earlier, you talked of Gretna Green and bread and cheese and <laughs> love in a cottage. Yes, sir. There's a lot to be said for it, you know. Well, to be said for it, yes, Doctor. But have you ever tried it? Not literally, my boy, but uh, I may tell you that when Mary, my wife, and I were first married, I had very little money. In fact, my income was just about the sum that you mentioned. And uh, we were very happy. Ah, but you have a profession, Doctor. Look at me. I've been trained for nothing except to be lord of Dunbar Castle. I can't support a wife on tradition. But you're young, Ian. You can get some kind of position. I'm sure you yes, can. Yes, of course, of course. As a matter of fact, I think that... Holmes, what is it? What's wrong? There's devil's work afoot, Watson. Come with me, old fellow. And you, Mr. Dunbar. Mr. Holmes, what's happened? It's Sir Walter. I went to his room. It was in darkness. But in the moonlight, I saw two figures struggling by the open casement. One of them was Sir Walter. As I entered, he disappeared from sight. His attacker had pushed him out of the window into the moat. How dreadful. The other man got away in the darkness. We must get lanterns and go out to the moat at once. Though I'm very much afraid, Mr. Dunbar, that your grandfather is beyond our help. Dr. Watson will be back in just a second, so I'd just like to remind you that if you want to serve a wine over the holidays that you're sure the ladies will enjoy, serve Petri California Muscatel. Petri Muscatel is a golden wine with a wonderful flavor, the flavor of big, plump Muscat grapes. And you know what a flavor that is. I'm sure you'll find that Petri Muscatel is the favorite wine of all women, just as Petri Port is the favorite wine with men. And incidentally, if you're not sure which to get, Petri Muscatel or Petri Port. Don't buy one, buy two. Get them both and you'll be sure to please everyone. Now to get back to our story, someone had pushed poor old Sir Walter out of his bedroom window and into the moat below. Isn't that right, Dr. Watson? Yes, Mr. Bartell, of course. We grabbed lanterns as fast as we could and rushed outside, but it was a hopeless task. The water was eight or ten feet deep and it seemed obvious that the elderly Sir Walter wouldn't have a chance of saving himself. But we searched on... The thicker bobbing lanterns and the scurrying figures in the frosty moonlight forming a weird, fantastic... Angus, bring a lantern over here. Aye, sir. Can you see anything, Holmes? Nothing. I don't see why your friend doesn't call the police, Dr. Watson. He's accomplishing nothing. He thought there might be a chance of finding the old man alive, Mr. Small. He wants to avoid a scandal, if possible, for your sake, sir, as well as the Dunbar. The scandal can't touch me or Dorothy over this. Her engagement was never announced, thank heaven. That's a great pity, sir. I should think some new blood in your family would be a great improvement. You're being confoundedly impertinent, Doctor. And you'll be confoundedly heartless, sir. Well, Holmes, have have you given up hope? I'm afraid we'll never find him without dragnets and grappling hooks. 
have to call the police. What time is it? Sir Ian, you know the time? What did you call me, Mr. Holmes? Sir Ian. By Jove, yes. It does seem a bit premature, Holmes, but of course you're right. If your poor grandfather's dead, Mr. Dunbar, you're the baronet now. And the time, Sir Ian? It's, it's a quarter to twelve, Mr. Holmes. A quarter of an hour to the new year, Sir Ian. Doesn't that fact suggest something to you? Yes. Yes, it does. So I'm the new baronet, am I? Very well, then. There'll be no more talk of the police for 15 minutes. I want all of you to come back to the castle with me. As the last chime of midnight rings out, I shall have a statement to make. A statement that I want you all to hear. Brought us all back here for home. There's something very funny going on. I tell you, I don't like the look of it. And I, Watson, like the look of it very much. I wish you wouldn't be so dashed mysterious. What are you up to? You haven't taken a step yet towards finding the murderer? Haven't I? And I wonder what causes the beads of perspiration on Mr. Small's brow. Small? You mean that Small... And I wonder what causes the singular look of apprehension on the face of Murdoch, the young lawyer. You remember, of course, on my remarking how easily he carried the large iron box. Chris Scott, yes. And it took a strong man to throw Sir Walter out of the window. Watson, the new year is approaching. Ladies and gentlemen, in view of our recent tragedy, this is one New Year's Eve when none of us feels like song and jollity. But there still remains a ritual duty for me to perform. Mr. Murdoch, open the iron box, please. But, but, but I can't do that. It was only to be opened for your grandfather. No, Mr. Murdoch. The phrase was that it was to be opened on the New Year's Eve before the baronet's 21st birthday. I am now the baronet, and I shall be 21 next year on August 21st. Open the box, please, Mr. Murdoch. Ian, darling, how practically clever of you. Good lad, I hoped you'd think of it. Serene. Murdoch. Open that box. Very well, Sir Ian. But I'm afraid you're in for something of a shock. Great, Scott, the, the box is empty. Oh, oh, oh. Except for a sheet of notepaper in the bottom. What's the meaning of this, Murdoch? Read that paper, Sir Ian, and you'll understand. I owe you 4,000 sovereigns. And it's signed Alexander Murdoch on behalf of Murdoch and Murdoch, lawyers. You'd better explain this. It's the family skeleton, Sir Ian. That note is signed by my great-grandfather, the one that witnessed the original deed concerning the box. As soon as Sir Walter was born on that February the 29th, my great-grandfather realized the money wouldn't have to be produced for 84 years. And so he stole it. He borrowed it. He always intended to pay it back, but he was never able to. When he died, he told my father of his secret, and my father in turn told me. We've always planned to put back the money, Sir Ian, but we've never been able to. This is daylight robbery. You should prosecute the me and the firm still in business. You can ruin them, you can sue them for every penny they have. Mr. Small, you've already shown a marked aversion to my family. I suggest you allow me to handle their affairs. Bravo, Ian. How dare you, Dorothy? Go to your room. No one's going to their room. No one's leaving here until the police arrive. I'm convinced that one of you murdered my grandfather tonight. And if you ask me, it's obvious who that someone is. Who, Dr. Watson? You, Mr. Murdoch. You came here planning to kill poor old Sir Walter because you never intended to open that box. You thought that your secret would die with him. That's a lie. I was going to tell him everything and then ask for time to pay the money. I didn't kill him. Of course he didn't. There's your murderer. You yourself, Ian. Father, what are you saying? I'm saying that Ian's the murderer. He saw that the box wasn't going to be open for another four years. He realized that the money couldn't marry Dorothy, so he killed his grandfather and then ordered the box open. You're trying to cover yourself. 
You pushed grandfather out of that window tonight. You thought that if he died, the box would never be opened. So Dorothy couldn't marry me. You, 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 young Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. Upon my soul, Holmes, you seem remarkably calm. Do I, my dear Watson? I must say I'm absolutely fascinated by listening to three people accusing each other of murder and each of them producing perfectly sound motives. It's a remarkable example of the dangers of reasoning from motive alone. We should profit by experience, Watson. Mr. Holmes, how can you be so calm? There's a murderer in this I room. I suppose this game of charades is getting a little out of hand, Miss Small. Let's conclude it. You'd better come out now. <gasps> that tapestry, it's moving. A happy new year to you all. Grandfather. Sir Walter, how am I seeing a ghost? Oh, Sir Walter, you're all right. Well, what kind of a game have you been playing? It's a funny game that Holmes and I invented. You might call it forcing the issue. I was determined to have the box open before the next four years were out, whilst I was still alive to look inside it. But the trickery of your family, Murdoch, has made me a very unhappy man. Sir Walter, I shall pay back the money in a few years. I swear I will. It'll be too late to do me any good. But I'll take care that Ian gets it. I've half a mind to prosecute you. Grandfather, the money isn't important now that you're all right. Uh, you were counting on it just the same, my boy, so that you could marry Dorothy. I know that. Uh, she'll never marry a pauper. I won't allow it. When I'm 21, you can't stop me, Father. And I am going to marry Ian. Be quiet. Sir Walter... It's a very unsavory business. Uh, I think that you owe us an explanation of your behavior tonight. You tell him, Holmes. I fancy a wee drop of cream of Dunbar. Watching you all search for my body in the moat has made me thirsty. <laughs> the explanation is a very simple one, ladies and gentlemen. When you arrived here tonight, Mr. Murdoch, I knew from the way you handled the box that it could not contain the sum of gold it was supposed to. And so you, you suspected fraud and devised a plan to force the opening of the box, Yes, huh? and Sir Walter was an eager conspirator. Of course I was. Ian is 21 next August. Supposing, supposing I had died after he came of age and before my next birthday, four years hence, the box would never have been opened. And so we invented the fake murder story. By the way, Ian, I must congratulate you for grasping the possibilities of the situation so speedily. If you hadn't demanded the opening of the box, the Murdoch secret might still be a secret. Well, it was a clever plan, Holmes. It's too bad that it had to have such a miserable ending. I'm not sure that we have finished with the matter. Mr. Murdoch. Yes, Mr. Holmes. You say that your family took 4,000 pounds from that box? Yes, Mr. Holmes. Curious. I would have sworn from its size that it would hold closer to 5,000. And in your account of the legend, Watson, you told me that Sir Thomas Dunbar stated on his deathbed that he had put something else in the yes, box. Something for a rainy day, is that yeah. it? Mm -hmm. Did the Murdochs find that extra something? No, Mr. Holmes. They found nothing but the gold. Oh, that's very odd. I think I'll take a closer look at that box, if you don't mind. Since this seems to be a night of telling secrets, I think you might as well know, Father, that if you don't give your consent, I shall elope with you. Oh, bravo, my dear, bravo. No such thing. I admire your resolution, young lady, but I hardly think it will be necessary. What do you mean, Holmes? Permit me to show you all the treasure of the Dunbars. What have you found, Holmes? The something for a rainy day that old Sir Thomas spoke of. You see... Since the cubic contents of the box obviously differed from my calculations, I deduced the existence of a false bottom. I was correct. And in that space, I found this. Oh, it's, it's a manuscript. Quite so, the manuscript of a book. Look at the title page and see the author's name. A history of the Dunbar family by Sir Walter Scott. Oh, I think, Sir Walter, that an original and unpublished manuscript by your distinguished namesake will prove worth several times the gold that is missing from that box. You've saved the day for us, Holmes, my boy. God bless you. Oh, oh, this has been as strange a new year as ever I knew, but it's turned out to be a bonny one, thanks to you, Holmes. Well, fill up your glasses. We're going to drink a toast to the new year. By Joe, yes, Sir Walter. This is really a happy occasion. Then let's complete it. 
by singing the traditional song of the season, Old Lang Syne. And in this case, when we sing, Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot, I feel that in our hearts we should be thinking of Sir Walter Scott. Though he died over 60 years ago, he's made us all very happy here tonight. Uh, should old acquaintance be forgot and never Doctor, that turned out to be a very happy new year for all concerned. Yes, that's one new year that I'll never forget. Well, I sure hope you'll always remember this one, too. Oh, just a second, my boy. That calls for a glass of port. Fine. Uh, well, to a, to a happy new year, my boy, for you and for our many friends listening in. And to you, Doctor. Oh, thanks, boy. Ah, that's good. Doctor, this has indeed been a pleasant association for me. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. You're the best storyteller I've ever known, and the Petri family makes the best wine I've ever tasted. I hope that just as they've been making wine for generations in the past, the Petri family will continue to make fine wine in the future. Well, uh, Mr. Bartell, I know that you'll always be here to tell us just how good that Petri wine is. <laughs> well, I hope so, Doctor. And I hope you'll always be right here beside me to... Tell another swell story about oh, Mr. Holmes. So too, my boy. <laughs> oh, and incidentally, Doctor, what new adventure are you planning to tell us next week? Next week, Mr. Bartell, I'm going to tell you a weird story. It starts with a series of murders on Hampstead Heath and ends with a battle to the death in a burning waxworks. I call it the strange case of the murderer in wax. Tonight's Sherlock Holmes adventure was written by Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher was suggested by an incident in the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Silver Blades. Music is by Dean Fossler. Mr. Rathbone appears through the courtesy of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Mr. Bruce through the courtesy of Universal Pictures, where they are now starring in the Sherlock Holmes series. The Petri Wine Company of San Francisco, California... Invite you to tune in again next week, same time, same station. Sherlock Holmes comes to you from our Hollywood studio. This is Harry Bartell saying goodnight for the Petri family. For a solid hour of exciting mystery dramas, listen every Monday on most of these same stations at 8 o'clock to Michael Shane, followed immediately by Sherlock Holmes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. I would like to thank Phyllis White for taking the time to tell us about her husband, Anthony Boucher, and also about Dennis Green, and those wonderful times, not so long ago, when Holmes and Watson were played by Rathbone and Bruce. The two episodes you have just heard are part of the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, and are a 1988 copyrighted production of... 221A Baker Street Associates. The Sherlock Holmes stories and the characters of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John H. Watson 
were created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and are used with the kind permission of Dame Jean Conan Doyle. This is Ben Wright. Won't you join me again sometime soon for two more new adventures of Sherlock Holmes? Thank you for listening. Suitable for this time of year when we're thinking about the calendar, that was the Iron Box. It was one of the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, and it came to us from December 31st, 1945. It starred Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And that leap year plot device came from the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, The Pirates of Penzance. Well, we started out with science fiction, and we're going to wrap it up with science fiction. It's X-1 next on Skywave Audio Theater. Now X-1 is going to take you to that futuristic year, 1969. That, of course, was the year of the first manned moon landing. And this story is about a moon landing with a very different purpose. It has to do with the survival of the human race and a simple solution to that problem. This may be the only episode of X-1 in which the title of the series turns up in the story. From December 26, 1956, this is X-1 with Honeymoon in Hell. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. horizons of the unknown come tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. Tonight, the time is the late 1960s. The place, Washington, D.C. The story, Honeymoon in Hell. My name is Carmody. I'm a grade one cybernetics man at Western Alliance headquarters in the Pentagon. Used to be a rocket pilot, but they retired me at 27 after I made the third successful flight to the moon. As a grade one cybernetics operator, I get to work with Junior. Let me tell you about Junior. He was built in 1962, and he's the world's finest electronic brain, with a possible exception of Ivan, the Eastern Alliance brain, which was built on stolen plans and modeled after Junior. There are only four men in the country permitted in the same room with Junior because the data we feed him is so secret. One of those four is the president of the Western Alliance. 
The other three are myself, Charlie Mazur, and the Chief. Ray? Oh, yes, Chief. Have you got Junior running a problem? Well, I just fed him the hourly data for probability of H-bomb war with the Eastern Alliance. Yeah, he's ready. Hold it. According to the data just received, the probability of a hot war between the Western and the Eastern Alliance is 99.930 in favor of such a war breaking out within the next month. Oh, doesn't sound good, Chief. No. Well, I'll scramble the data and send it to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Meanwhile, here's a Priority C civilian problem to run on. Well, what's this stuff? Well, it seems on September 17th, a statistician in the birth record department of New York City noticed that out of 813 births reported that day, 657 had been girls, and only 156 had been boys. Well, that sounds impossible. That's what this statistician thought. So they phoned some other cities, and the same trend is being shown, not only in other American cities, but in Western Europe. Sunspots, maybe? That's for Junior to figure out. He's the brain here. Okay, I'll feed him. Give me the results on the intercom. I'll be in my office. Right. I didn't really pay much attention to the problem at the time. As a grade one operative, I was more interested in asking Junior questions on security, ballistics, missiles, rocketry, and so on. The Eastern Alliance would undoubtedly have traded three puppet governments and the tomb of Lenin to have an agent as a grade one operative. But I took the birth statistics and fed them in and waited. Uh, Junior, incidentally, responds to vocal stimuli. Speaks 12 languages. Got the answer, Junior? I have. Okay. The present statistics, if the trend is projected for another day, indicate a definite dangerous imbalance. If the trend is irreversible, unless new methods of reproduction are developed, the population of the United States and Western Europe will die out in one and one-half generations. Well, it wasn't long before the newspapers got the story and kicked it around. People in governments really started to worry now. Biologists and laboratories made it their number one project. On September 29th, only 41 boys were born in the entire United States. During the month of October, in spite of all the work going on, not a single male child was born anywhere in the world, with the exception of one in outer Mongolia and one in Alaska. November drew another blank. I was working 18 hours a day, feeding every available scrap of data to Junior. Data insufficient for answer to your question. Well, here's the latest. A new analysis of chromosome structure indicates the presence of an additional electron in the orbit of the Y atom for carbon chain X. Now try again. The question is, what is causing the lack of male birth? Anything new, Ray? No, not yet. Hold it. Data insufficient. Well, that's it. We've fed Junior every scrap of information that every physicist, geneticist, chemist, and biologist in this half of the world knows, and all he does is say data insufficient. Yeah, well, the operator who had him last night didn't do any better. Uh, any more information on the Eastern Alliance? Have they made any progress? No, but at least the talk of a hot war is dying down. Well, they're still working on a space station, aren't they? Oh, yes, we're both going ahead with that. But, well, this seems to be a common problem now. You know, in spite of hydrogen bombs and ICBMs, people don't really expect the whole race to die out from a war. But the complete lack of male children, now that's something that every family can understand. Has anybody thought of the possibility of some kind of radiation from outer space that's damaging the chromosomes, something our instruments can't detect? Everybody's thought of it. Nobody's proved anything. 
Well, keep trying, Junior. Maybe he'll come up with something. Okay. Junior, I'm ashamed of you. Answer me. Information recorded. Look, you're a whiz on rocket fuels and space orbits, but when it comes to women, you're a total bust, just like me. I don't understand them and never will. Information recorded. Now, you've convinced us that if we use the H-bombs in total war, both sides will lose, and we know that your counterpart in Moscow University has given the same information to the Eastern Alliance. That you can figure out. But women... You can't have genetics without women, right? No. Well, you know that much. <laughs> what about that blonde at the party last night, huh? What about her? The question is inadequately worded. Please clarify. Should I see her again? No. What? You haven't even got any data on her. Why shouldn't I see her again? Answer, please. Because tomorrow you are going to be married. <laughs> jumped out of my chair. Junior had gone stark, raving mad. Besides, Junior never made predictions unless he had some definite data. There wasn't a woman on earth I had the slightest interest in marrying. I was a confirmed bachelor. So, unless somebody else had been feeding phony data into Junior, which was almost impossible since he already had enough data to check any flaw, well, I figured he'd blown a transistor. Come in. Oh, Chief, I was just going to tell you... Oh... Ray Carmody, this is the president of the Western Alliance. Captain Carmody, Mr. President. Glad to meet you, Captain. Oh, I'm... I'm very honored, sir. The president came here specifically to talk to you, Ray. To me? Captain Carmody, you have been chosen to have the opportunity to volunteer for a mission of extreme importance. Now, there's much danger, but not as much as on your previous trip to the moon. Previous trip, sir? And this involves another? The flight to the moon, Captain, will be the least important part of your mission. What's at stake here is the survival of the human race. Chief, perhaps you'd better explain the rest. Mm -hmm. Well, you know the problem, Ray. Last night when Mitchell was on, we fed Junior some new data, and we asked some new questions. For example, we asked if the lack of male birth could be due to some extraterrestrial enemies of man. Or Martians? Possibly. We established that it's possible that Martians have landed somewhere on Earth and set up radiation that causes all children to be females. Junior said it was possible? Definitely. So we asked him the next question. How could we correct such a situation? Mm -hmm. What did he say? Junior suggested that a married couple spend a honeymoon on the moon and uh, see if circumstances are different. Oh, I see. You want me to pilot them there? Well, uh, not exactly, Captain. Oh, good grief. You mean you want me to... Well, Junior wasn't crazy after all. You asked Junior? He said I was getting married, but... Well, how do you know it was me they'd pick? He was asked the qualifications for the bridegroom. He recommended a rocket pilot who had already made the trip successfully. Well, there are four other pilots who've made that trip. You're the only single one. And since the woman must be a qualified pilot also, and uh, none of the wives are pilots, well... Uh, I assume I'm going to be married before we leave. Well, naturally. Oh. And, uh, just how long do we stay on the moon? Until a child is conceived. Brother. Well, Captain, do you volunteer? I suppose so. I... Well, wait a minute. Uh, who's the other pilot? I mean, uh, the girl. <clears throat> she was flown in by fast rocket an hour ago and is waiting in Chief Reba's office. 
Now, shall we go? There were some officials there, and a justice, and my bride. She was small, dark, slender, and very attractive. I was so busy looking at the way she filled out her uniform in just the right places that I almost overlooked the fact that she was dressed like an Eastern Alliance pilot. Captain Ray Carmody, may I present Lieutenant Anya Borisovna? You mean this is... I mean, uh, an enemy pilot? Pleased to meet you, Captain. Uh, yes, yes, I'm, I'm pleased to meet you. Uh, Mr. President, I... Captain, this marriage is being done on an international basis for important diplomatic reasons. Both alliances have been advised by their cybernetic machine that the experiment, if it is to benefit humanity, must bring all the major powers together. Miss Borisovna is 24, an experienced rocket pilot like yourself, and uh, <clears throat> quite attractive, if I do say so myself. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Now, if you're both ready, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court will perform the ceremony. Well, there's just uh, one thing, Mr. President. Miss um, <clears throat> Borisovna, would you marry me? Yes. And uh, <clears throat> you may call me Anya. Okay. Uh, Mr. President, we're ready. I didn't even get a chance to kiss the bride. We were rushed over to the labs for a pre-flight physical. Then the chief took me aside for a private pre-flight briefing. Congratulations, Ray. Sit down. Thank you. Now, zero hours at 10 o'clock. Only half an hour? We've known about this for several weeks now, Ray. Ship is ready. We've already fired 11 supply rockets and observed that they landed on the moon near where you're supposed to put down. One of them contains a heat-proof, airtight, collapsible shelter where you live. Uh-huh. Oh, what's the ship like? R-26. Much better than the R-24 that you flew there. Last time, Ray, you took four and a half Gs for seven minutes. This time you'll get by with three Gs and have 12 minutes to accelerate to Brenchless. Now, you will have enough fuel for the trip there. One of the supply rockets has your return fuel. Oh, uh, oh yes. We put in a case of scotch and a uh, case of vodka, uh, just as an icebreaker. Uh -huh. uh, before we go, Chief, what would you have done if I'd turned this job down? The cybernetics machine predicted that you wouldn't. Besides, we could have had a hundred volunteers an hour after seeing Anya Borisovna. <laughs> that gal was moonbait. Uh, careful. You're speaking of my wife. Tower to R-26. Are you both strapped in? Anya, you strapped into the webbing? Yes. Okay, Chief. The time is X minus 15. I have a message from the President. Quote, The people of the world are watching. Don't fail them. I have messages from the Soviets, the Chinese, the British, the Indians, all wishing you well. You are the hope of mankind, and all mankind unites as it has never before united in giving you its blessings. We await your return anxiously. Unquote. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one. Blast off.
sound that was beyond all sounds struck us like a giant muffled hammer. It built up until we weighed 480 pounds, pressed flat against the webbing. Sound and pressure went on and on interminably. Then we reached Brenchless, free of the pull of earth. I blacked out. When I came to, a lovely face was bent over mine, two dark eyes smiling at me. Are you all right, Ray? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, are we weightless? Yes, yes. I shut off the fuel. We, we won't need it until we land. Oh, thanks. Ah, uh, if you would teach me, I could help you land the ship. Oh, I've never been to the moon. Well, sure. Just uh, slide over here to the control panel. All right. <laughs> like this? Oh, that's fine. Mm. Uh, we've got about four hours Earth time to get acquainted. Uh, uh, <clears throat> have you uh, known many women? A few. Have you uh, had any boyfriends? <clears throat> One or two. Hmm. Well, I was never really serious about anybody. Oh. <laughs> you, uh, have a family? Yes. Uh, in Magnitogorsk. Oh. I'm from Brooklyn. Oh. <clears throat> How long have you been a rocket pilot? Oh, since I was 18. Uh, I'm 27. I'm 24. I learned rockets when I was 18 also. <laughs> oh. Well, uh, we better concentrate on the ship just now. Later on, we can talk about ourselves more. Meanwhile, though, I uh, hope you're not sorry. I mean, about this business. I guess it isn't very romantic. I'm not sorry. We made a good landing. It didn't knock either of us unconscious. Then we got into our spacesuits and got out of the rocket. Some of the supply rockets were lying within a quarter mile. There were six eastern rockets and three westerns. About 800 yards away, though, there was a big supply rocket we couldn't identify. It looked different from the others, and neither of us could identify it as an eastern or western design we were familiar with. I pointed to it, and we headed there. You recognize that supply rocket? No, no, I, I was not briefed on anybody's standard still in the shape. Well, it must be something the chiefs of staff sent up as a surprise for us. I figured about uh, 50 feet long, but you can't see the rocket tubes. It, it might be a payload from a stepped rocket assembly. Uh-huh. Well, there's a door on the side, anyway, you see? The top of that ramp. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, maybe we ought to observe it a while before we go in. Oh, nonsense. Come on. Ray! Yes? Ray, I, I, I'm frightened. There's something wrong with you. Only one way to find out on you. Let's go. Well, there's some kind of lock on this door. Let's see if it opens. Well, that was easy. It's lighted inside. Mm -hmm. Come on. Maybe they sent us a surprise cottage for the honeymoon. Special delivery to the moon. This doesn't look like anything designed for humans to live in. The door's closed behind us. Try the lock. No, it's no use. Here, let me try. Oh, holy smoke, I can't get oh. it open. Do you have a gun? No, no, I have no weapons. They would be useless anyway. <sighs> oh, look. Good grief. They look like blobs of flesh with arms and legs. About, about three feet. 
saw. Don't make any sudden moves. That's some kind of weapon he's carrying. Precisely, Captain Carmody. Who are you? How do you know my name? My people and I are inhabitants of another galaxy. Extraterrestrial? Precisely. As for how we know your name and your language, we have been studying you since you first achieved space travel. We have intercepted your radio communications, for example. Uh, have you been responsible for the lack of male birth? We have been beaming an ultrasonic wave toward your planet. Uh, what are you planning to do? For the moment, we will keep you aboard our ship and steady you. You may remove your helmets, incidentally. We have provided an oxygen atmosphere. Can, can, can we risk it? Well, if he wants to kill us, there are easier ways. Here, help me get it off. <laughs> Well, it breathes pretty good. Keep your helmet with you. You may make yourselves comfortable. We will bring you food and liquid from your supply rockets. Uh, do not attempt to escape, please. It could be most unpleasant. The next few days were like a nightmare. The blobs left us to ourselves except to feed us. Of course, it had its funny side, too. The creatures knew we needed liquid, but they couldn't distinguish between water and whiskey. For the first two days, we had nothing but whiskey to drink. For obvious reasons, I don't remember much about it, but uh, we did begin to sing to each other. We also got to know and like each other. I got to learn some Eastern songs. On the third day, the jugs were water jugs, and uh, we sobered up. What a hangover. You were singing magnificently. Oh, well, you weren't so bad yourself. How long was I asleep? Oh, about eight hours. Ray, while you were passed out, I discovered how we can escape. What? I've been studying the blobs. They seem to have a five-hour sleep period when there is no sound in the ship. I've tried banging on the walls with my helmet during that period, but apparently they're almost completely unconscious during our... Mm-hmm. Five hours sleep. That means a planet with approximately a 20-hour rotation. The Joint Chiefs will want to know that if we get back. And more important, we are much stronger physically than they are. I can actually bend the metal of the door lock. Well, now, what are we waiting for? Let's put on our helmets and get out of here. Are they in the sleep period? Yes, for about three hours. Ray, do you think we can risk it? We don't have much choice. I'll go ahead. If we get out of this ship, you run for our rocket and start to refuel. I'll keep an eye on the blobs. All right. All right, but Ray, oh, please be careful. Don't worry. Uh, before you put on your space helmet... Uh, <laughs> You realize I've never even kissed the bride? Yes. Oh, Ray. <laughs> Good luck, Mrs. Carmody. <laughs> By the time I reached the ship, Anya had the rockets refueled. I jacked up the tail fins and we headed for space. When I checked our screen to see if the blobs were after us, we detected their ship heading toward the outer galaxies away from Earth. The rest was easy. In less than 24 hours, I was in the office of the president of the Western Alliance making a full report. The Eastern ambassador was there, along with the chief. Captain, this story is incredible. Well, I'll be glad to submit to a lie detector, Mr. President. There's one on its way. Our embassy is questioning Miss Borisovna right now to see if her story is similar. Are you positive they were extraterrestrials? I mean, couldn't they have been, well, Easterners? 
if Easterners are three feet tall without bones and look like little green blobs of protoplasm. Yes. It's for you, Ambassador Crubbett. Thank you. Yes. 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 Our woman tells the same story under scopolamine. It must be the truth. Obviously, they went back for reinforcements or further orders. If and when they get back, we've got to be ready for them. My government stands ready to cooperate fully. Excellent. We'll have to build a joint space station, get to the moon and fortify it jointly. If we pool all scientific knowledge, military data, we may be able to do it. Our propaganda ministry has already received orders to put everything into reverse gear. Comedy, I don't know how the world can ever thank you and Miss Borisovna. You not only averted a suicidal war between the East and West, you've also managed to draw us together in a joint effort where international power politics must be a thing of the past. Well, sir, uh, I have a request to make. Anything, my boy. By the way, your wife is on her way over. Uh, I'd like to get back to Junior to ask him a personal question before I see her again, if you don't mind. Well, it's rather odd, but I suppose if it's what you wish... Chief, would you let Captain Carmody operate the cybernetics machine alone for a few moments? Right this way, Ray boy. I waited until I was alone with the big cybernetics machine. One green dial glowed malevolently as if the instrument was aware of my presence. I opened the input channel and spoke. Hello, Junior. This your old friend Ray. Give an appropriate answer. Hello, Ray. Now then, you remember Miss Borisovna, the girl who was selected for me to marry. Item one, she's going to rejoin me in a short while. Item two, I've fallen in love with her. Item three, before we actually live together as man and wife, I want to know something. Question. Does she love me? Yes. Oh, oh that's my boy. Now then, just one more item before I say so long and take a honeymoon. Tell me, Junior, why do I have a hunch that those blobs from outer space will never be back? Answer, please. Because what you call a hunch comes from your own unconscious mind. Your unconscious mind knows that the extraterrestrials do not, and never did, exist. What? Do you wish the answer repeated? I wish you to tell me why I saw them, why Anya saw them. Neither of you saw them. Amplify that answer, Junior, or I'll smash every tube in your memory bank. Since I am an AC-7 cybernetics machine, I have no circuit reactor for threats of destruction of my tubes. The answer to your question is as follows. The memory of extraterrestrials is due to post-hypnotic suggestion. You mean I was hypnotized to find those blobs on the moon? Correct. And just who hypnotized me? I did. I hypnotized you. Oh. And Anya? A similar AC-7 cybernetics machine located at the University of Moscow. Would you explain why? Cybernetics machines are constructed to help humanity. A major war, the disastrous results of which I could accurately calculate, was inevitable unless forestalled. Calculation showed that the best way to avert that war was the creation of a common mythical enemy. Therefore, I created a situation which led to your mission to the moon. Well, well, wait a minute. You created the situation? Yes. 
Well, tell me how you did it. How did you prevent male babies from being conceived? A special modification of radio carrier wave for station JVT here in Washington, D.C., the only 24-hour-a-day radio station in the United States. The modification is not detectable by any instrument known to man at present. Well, how could you do that? You can't leave here. One year ago, you yourself fed me a problem. The design of a new cathode tube for radio station JVT. I modified the tube to send out a wave that would prevent male children from being conceived. So all we have to do is eliminate that tube. It will not be necessary. The tube was designed to burn out exactly 15 minutes ago. And the same thing happened in the Eastern Alliance? Precisely. Two properly constructed machines will always arrive at the same answer to the same problem. Oh, Junior, I gotta hand it to you. But why let me in on it? It is to the interests of humanity to know the truth. It is to your own interests. And you will tell no one because of the type of individual you are. Mankind will work together now to reach the stars. Uh, one last question, Junior. If Anya and I were just hypnotized to think all of that was happening up on the moon, what really did happen up there? I waited a while, but Junior was silent. It's the first time he ever pulled anything like that. However, I'll swear that I saw that green eye of his wink at me. have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features Butterfly Nine by Donald Keith, the story of Jeff, who needed a job, and a man with a job to offer, one where giant economy-sized trouble had labels like fake make, bumsy, and pickage. Galaxy Magazine, on your newsstand today. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you Honeymoon in Hell, a story from the pages of Galaxy written by Frederick Brown and adapted for radio by George Lefferts. Featured in the cast were William Redfield, Vilma Cure, Wendell Holmes, Charles Penman, Leon Janney, Roger DeCoven, and Jack Grimes. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. Keep the fight against heart disease moving steadily forward. You're urged to support your heart fund. Send a generous contribution to your local heart association or to heart care of your local post office. When you help your heart fund, you help your heart. Hear the latest up to the second news with Frank Blair weekday mornings on most of these stations. A story about what the media used to call rapprochement between East and West with artificial intelligence and some extraterrestrial protoplasmic blobs thrown in, or maybe not, with a few plot twists thrown in, too. That was Honeymoon in Hell, really kind of a misnomer. It was a much happier story than the title would imply. It came to us from X-1, December 26th of 1956, leaving you with the question, 
what really did happen up there on the moon. Well, we'll call it a happy ending. And here's hoping that you have a happy ending for your old year and a happy new year in 2021. I'm Norman Gilliland. Thanks for joining me tonight, and I hope you'll join me next time for Skywave Audio Theater.